With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-Centered Encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. Yeah, man, it, it, it was it was sickening, man. You know, I mean, and the thing is, man, when you in there, you you're living that close to that kind of thing. You know, you you living with a hope and a prayer that this don't never happen to you. You know, and this was a young guy, man. This guy, this this gorilla guy named Paul was pimping him. You know, and he would come out the cell, and he would have a handkerchief in his back pocket, a white handkerchief, was to let all the inmates know was that the boy was av- available. And and they would line up and they would pay uh, three packs to go in there to uh, to get Valencia and you know rec- uh, uh, sodomy and hand jobs. You know this this guy this young boy was in there doing three and four guys at a time. You know until one day he snapped out. He snapped out. I mean he snapped out and and tried to kill kill that guy. You know who was uh, who was pimping him. You know, and, and I mean, it, it was it, it was it was frightening. And like the homosexual thing was so deep that uh, uh, the guards were participating. The guards were actually participating uh, 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 with, with with having sex with the homos. Once wow. they got them off, once they got them off the population block, on the block uh, uh, where the holding at the, the like people that scared, they would put them on D block. And this is the block where the hole was at, and where they kept uh, 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 obvious homos at. When you, if, if you came in, if you came in the jail wearing thin lady clothes and stuff like that, and wigs and stuff, automatically you would be sent to that particular block. But the guys that was in population that, that got scared, they would run out to the center and complain, and they would get put over on that block, you know. And 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 the, the guards would. Certain guards were going over there, having sex with them, uh, for offering them protection. Wow! 
context of white supremacy, Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, June 17th, 2016. So I have been told uh, the audio segment you heard that was Edward Anthony. Uh, he was mentioned uh, in medical apartheid last week in chapter 10, uh, talking about the just egregious experimentation that was done on disproportionate numbers of black inmates uh, in Holmesburg prison in Pennsylvania. Uh, he was one of the victims. Uh, he was mentioned in the text. He was a guest on the program in August of 2014. He's also a co-author uh, with Alan Hornblum of Sentenced to Science. Uh, he gave a lot more detail about the sexual deviance that black inmates experienced at Holmesburg, and he talked about how the experiments that were being conducted on black inmates, how that also drove the anti-sexual behavior and sexual abuses because it gave uh, inmates funds uh, to be able to pay people off, guards or whatever else, to get these sexual favors. Uh, just a wealth of heinous information. You can hit the archives again, August 2014, if you want to he, uh, hear both he and Mr. Hornblum uh, talking about Acres of Skin and Sentenced to Science. Acres of Skin has been mentioned liberally throughout the text, Medical Apartheid. This is our ninth study session. We're picking up in the middle of Chapter 10, Voluntary Slavery. Harriet A. Washington's outstanding research should be mandatory reading material for each and every black person, especially if you're serious about countering racism, white supremacy. With that, we'll get started. Context of white supremacy, Harriet A. Washington, Medical Apartheid, audio segment, Number one, volunteer medical slavery. But were prisoners, black or white, really volunteers? In 1947, the International Military Tribunal in Nuremberg charged Nazi doctors with war crimes, including experimentation upon prisoners of war. The Germans' ably conducted defense hinged upon Dr. Gerhard Rose's contention that U.S. doctors were guilty of exactly the same abuses, regularly subjecting prisoners to dangerous, painful, involuntary experiments. The trials culminated not only in the conviction and execution of many accused physicians, but also in the Nuremberg Code, which was devised to govern future medical experimentation. The U.S. delegation to the Nuremberg trials included Andrew Ivey, M.D., the American Medical Association representative. He offered an idealistic view of American prison research, assuring the public that the highest standards were upheld. Ivy specifically claimed that American prisoners had never been abused or used involuntarily. But he was wrong. In fact, a mere year after Nuremberg, the Journal of the American Medical Association praised the Statesville prison malaria experiments, which violated the Nuremberg prescription against experimentation by using prisoners. Unfortunately, American researchers have never thought of the code as pertinent to their own research. Yale Law School ethicist J. Katz, M.D., avers that in the eyes of many American researchers, it was a good code for barbarians, but an unnecessary code for ordinary physicians. In 
The Nazi Doctors and the Nuremberg Code, George Annas and Michael Groden analyze how U.S. investigators rejected Nuremberg and replaced it with naught but hollow assurances that American medical researchers needed no such constraints. The Nuremberg Code is also toothless, carrying no penalties for its breach, and so it is widely ignored. The vague, unsubstantiated claims proposed by Ivy stood in opposition to the judgments of all the pertinent medical organizations, which by the end of World War II had already weighed experimentation with prisoners in their ethical balances and found it wanting. Even a specially appointed research committee of the AMA denounced experimentation with prisoners as a human rights violation, despite the AMA's praise of the malaria experiments. In 1952, this AMA House of Delegates accordingly issued a resolution entitled Disapproval of Participation in Scientific Experiments by Inmates of Penal Institutions. Physicians, universities, or jails could not claim to be unaware of this position because the AMA sent copies of the resolution to governors, state and federal prison officials, and parole boards. Similarly, the Ethical Committee of the World Medical Association, in its 1961 Code of Ethics on Human Experimentation, declared, Persons detained in prisons, penitentiaries, or reformatories, being captive groups, should not be used as subjects of human experiment, nor persons in a position in which they are incapable of exercising the power of free choice. But none of these prohibitions on medical experimentation with prisoners was ever enforced, so they were blithely ignored by researchers, who were allowed to police themselves. Researchers, wardens, pharmaceutical companies, and universities echoed Ivy's claim that prisoners chose to participate voluntarily and even clamored for inclusion in experiments. Were prison subjects, black and white, willing volunteers who freely consented to inoculation with deadly infectious diseases and to testing that removed or damaged their skin, hair, and nails? Did they voluntarily submit to castration for a few dollars and the transplantation of animal tissue or cancer cells, as well as exposure to chemical warfare agents and untried psychoactive drugs? Usually, no. The supposedly free consent of American prisoners was circumscribed in several ways. In the most extreme cases, some prisoners' right to say no simply did not exist. For example... Between January 1967 and April 1968, imprisoned subjects at the California Medical Facility were paralyzed with succinylcholine, also known then as an ectin, a neuromuscular compound that paralyzed muscles so that the prisoner could not move or breathe. Many likened the terrifying experience to drowning in fetters. When five of the 64 selected prisoners refused to participate in the experiment, the institution's special treatment board gave permission on behalf of the recalcitrant men for them to be injected, against their will. But prison administrations usually exerted subtler pressure, in the form of authority figures and even prisoner advocates, such as social workers, who steered penniless inmates to research studies. 
Former Holmesburg social worker Priscilla B. Croft recalls, If somebody didn't have money for the commissary and wasn't on the list for a job, the social worker would say, you can go to the U of P testing operation. Another social worker admitted harboring doubts about the medical studies to which he referred inmates. We questioned it among ourselves, but nobody looked into it. The medical personnel walked around in white coats and looked very official and authoritative. Parole boards exerted considerable pressure as well. The well-publicized releases of volunteers, such as Louis Boy, Nathan Leopold, and the 59 survivors of the Statesville malaria experiment, dangled a tantalizing carrot of freedom before potential subjects. Although volunteers usually did not receive parole, administrators often placed letters of thanks or commendation in volunteers' files, which might have raised their hopes. But parole boards sometimes exerted strong negative pressure as well, according to inmates such as Nick Despoldo of the Arizona State Prison, who claimed in a New York Times article that parole boards routinely held a refusal to participate in research against inmates seeking release from his institution. The prisoner's ability to consent freely was also compromised by a lack of essential information. Informed consent is mandatory for research subjects in all venues, but researchers often did not divulge the true nature of the risks, and often did not even explain the actual nature of the experiments. A New York Times expose of the multi-prison debacle by Dr. Austin Stowe, mentioned earlier, reveals that there was no informed consent and that no accurate records were kept. Some researchers who claimed to have consent forms could not produce them. Jesse Williams, veteran of scores of experiments, has repeatedly insisted, I was never given a consent form. I never saw a consent form. Consent forms made sporadic appearances in prison research, but the average black prisoner was poorly educated or even illiterate. So even when presented with a consent form, he was unlikely to be able to read or understand it. Former black inmate Edward Anthony, for example, insists that he had no idea what researchers meant by terms such as toxicity or efficacy. Consent forms often were so vague, misleading, and replete with technical data and scientific language that the physicians themselves could not understand them. Although consent forms made only sporadic appearances, legal releases were de rigueur. Lots of men were burned or scarred and wanted to sue, but they had signed releases and waivers and thought they couldn't, recalls white former Philadelphia inmate Al Zabala. Investigators went to remarkable lengths to deceive inmates about the harms inherent in the tests. Jesse Williams spoke of participating in what had been described to him as a footwear experiment, in which he had to wear boots taped to his feet nonstop for a week. This actually was an experimental attempt to induce a hard-to-eradicate foot fungus. When white inmate Jay Bios worked as a laboratory assistant, doctors suggested that to allay inmates' fear about the test's safety, Bios affixed cotton balls and dummy patches to his own back and arms. In order to heighten the deception, the researchers even paid Bios 
as if he were a participant. Prisoners at Holmesburg were often reassured that the shampoos or lotions that were tested on them were perfectly safe and could cause only minor irritation. Thirty to fifty years later, the men remain bald, scarred, or suffer skin and internal organ damage. But what of other volunteers, those who were neither physically forced nor strongly guided by the prison administration? When they participated, did they offer themselves up voluntarily? The answer hinges upon the meaning of voluntary. Copious evidence exists that coercion was a key element of the supposed consent given by most African-American prisoners. Today's clinical medical ethicists tend to define coercion in medical research very narrowly and without much precision. So many would argue that the inmates may have been induced, but were not coerced. However, such critics fail to take into account the coercive features of the prison's special environment. The hell of prison life made the research laboratory, feared and abhorred by African Americans on the outside, an irresistible haven, even a life support unit, for the African American prisoner. Except for a few memoirs by famous inmates such as Leopold, the description of inmates' motives for volunteering emanated from researchers and prison administrators. They agreed that the inmates were motivated by money, with which they could purchase items such as cigarettes, radios, and the meager delicacies of the commissary. Researchers also sometimes noted for the press that prisoners enjoyed the special amenities of the prison ward, such as more frequent showers, better meals, and calmer, more secure surroundings. The news media unquestioningly echoed these supposed motivations, subtly sabotaging images of inmate heroism. But researchers and prison administrators were hardly disinterested observers, and they did not tell everything they knew about prisoners' true motives. Being admitted to the research unit allowed the inmate to avoid the legion of institutional predators— a stint in the lab offered a respite from the ever-present threat of gang rape, shakedowns, racial strife from prison gangs, and deadly assaults for a thousand petty slights. Taking meals in the laboratory unit allowed the subject to escape the mess hall, the dreaded site of frequent melees and stabbings. The inmates did speak with relish of the better meals and calmer atmosphere of the research laboratory, and freely acknowledged their need for money. There is no question that men participated for the 300 to $400 a month or up to $1,500 per experiment they could earn. Because the few dollars a week the unskilled could earn in the prison laundry or kitchen offered no competition. But a cultural dissonance separated the hostile, violent chaos of the inmates' world and the benign, orderly environment of the university researcher or journalist. Money had a very different meaning for inmates than it had for outsiders. Inmates sought not only commissary baubles and delicacies to brighten life, but, more important, the price of freedom, or at least, of safety. Poverty, not criminal behavior, is the most common feature of the imprisoned. Jails are full of people, both guilty and innocent, who are there only because they are too poor to make bail. By the 1970s, 
most prisoners in Holmesburg, for example, were legally innocent men awaiting trial. Between the 1940s and 1970s, bail bondsmen typically would spring an inmate for a down payment of 10% of his bail, so that a man jailed in lieu of a $500 bond could buy his freedom within weeks with the $50 he earned from a single medical experiment. Several inmates also mention a motivation about which the news media kept silent. The human landscape of prison is largely devoid of affection, and incarcerated men described time in the research laboratory as a respite for the psyche, a place where one could go for a while to be addressed and touched with kindness, dignity, and concern. Researchers such as Kligman knew this, and he imparted the knowledge to medical protégés during lectures. Many of the prisoners for the first time in their lives find themselves in the role of important human beings. We say to them, you're important, we need you. Once this is established, these guys will knock their brains out to please you. If the experiment does not pan out, they get depressed. They become emotionally involved with the projects. The capacity to respond to love is greater than most people realize. I feel almost like a scoundrel, like Machiavelli, because of what I can do to them. Solomon McBride, Dr. Kligman's chief scientific assistant, was African-American. Although he had no formal education in pharmacology, Acres of Skin describes how he managed the Holmesburg testing program on a daily basis for 20 years once again illustrating how some blacks participated in experimental injuries to black subjects. However, McBride described the studies as non-invasive procedures and claimed nobody was injured in those tests. When confronted about the lifelong injuries to inmates, he denied knowledge of such practices. I wasn't aware of that, said McBride. I don't think it ever happened. When asked about the use of radioactive isotopes, he is quick to respond. No, that wasn't done. I don't think the prison would permit it. Informed that documents from the Atomic Energy Commission verify the use of isotopes at Holmesburg, he admits, I heard about it, but I don't know anything about it. I was opposed to things that were not kosher. If I saw something wrong, I'd tell them to stop. I told the residents not to do stuff that was dangerous. If they hurt those black brothers, I wouldn't let them do it. Despite McBride's denials, Holmesburg prisoners suffered psychiatric damage and physical injuries that crippled them for life. Many inmates believe that research physicians had sown the seeds of deadly cancers during their time in the laboratory. But this claim cannot be proven because inmates do not know to what they were exposed. Inmates also volunteered for experiments because the laboratory was often the inmate's sole point of entry to medical care, which was sketchy. On evenings and weekends, medical staff were often simply unavailable, and guards or even trusted inmates performed triage on a sick-call model, assessing who was ill, who was malingering, and who was sick enough to justify the inconvenience of arranging transport to distant medical care. Continuous medical care, such as quality cancer chemotherapy and regular diabetes maintenance, apart from blood glucose drugs, were simply unavailable. Prisons Purge Research By the 1970s, 
research in prisons began to disappear, succumbing to scandals that unmasked the racially unbalanced, abusive, dangerous, and scientifically sloppy nature of experimentation with prisoners. The exploitation of large numbers of black male prisoners caused public relations problems for researchers and institutions in the wake of the increasingly violent and bitter civil rights battles and the revelations of the syphilis study at Tuskegee. The thalidomide scandal, in which thousands of deformed children were born to European women who took the poorly tested drug, was another important catalyst in tainting the American perception of medical research. Furthermore, Harvard researcher Henry K. Beecher, M.D., had published an article in the New England Journal of Medicine that criticized 22 cases of exploitative experimentation. An early version of the article had detailed 50 abusive cases. The journal was able to induce Dr. Beecher not to identify the physicians, but the pharmaceutical industry feared that next time, a researcher of Beecher's stature might name names. The very next year, British physician Morris Papworth did so. The formerly fawning news media delivered the coup de grace by thrusting researcher after researcher into the harsh light of public exposure. On July 29, 1969, the New York Times published a page one article that exposed Dr. Austin Stowe's ethically and scientifically sloppy drug testing program which had crippled and killed unknown numbers of men throughout the state prisons of Alabama. Unlike the earlier articles, which had praised the experiments, this account suggested that most of his victims were black. In the early 1970s, the Washington Star exposed the use of approximately 15,000 black boys in Maryland juvenile institutions in XYY experiments. These are further described in Chapter 11. The malaria experiments that had been lauded as daring a few decades earlier were roundly condemned in the mid-70s as deadly. Some of the bitterest prison battles were physical as well as verbal, causing the almost universally white investigators to fear for their safety. Dr. Sigmund Weitzman described being slammed against a wall by six-foot-four-inch, 250-pound Roy Tiger Williams, a black inmate at Holmesburg who had lost his hair after testing a shampoo formulation. I was scared to death. He threatened to kill me. Physicians grew frightened of working with the increasingly distrustful inmates and felt intimidated by the growing influence of the black Muslims, who cast a jaundiced eye on prison experimentation. Bert Kahn, M.D., who worked at Holmesburg Prison from 1959 to 1965, says he left in part because he feared for his personal safety. I became concerned about the growth of the Muslim movement. The deaths of 29 inmates and 11 white authority figures in the 1971 Attica prison riot also sent a chill through prison medical research programs. Such programs suffered legal repercussions as well. Attica inmates won damages for suffering ill treatment and assaults. In 1979, nine Oregon prison subjects shared $2,215 in damages. When a lawsuit by one medical experimentation victim at Holmesburg Prison resulted in a monetary settlement, 
whose terms are confidential. Other pharmaceutical company researchers realized that they too could become targets of successful inmate legal action. Charles Miller, a prison research administrator for pharmaceutical giant Eli Lilly, lamented, The reason we closed the doggone thing down was that we were getting too much hassle and heat from the press. It just didn't seem worth it. A January 1973 Atlantic Monthly cover story by investigative journalist Jessica Mitford proved even more powerful. She explained that prison medical research consisted of exploitation of the lowest, most vulnerable classes by members of the most privileged. This article became a chapter entitled Cheaper Than Chimpanzees in her 1973 book Kind and Usual Punishment, a dissection of the U.S. prison system. Soon afterward, Senator Edward Kennedy held hearings that led to the National Commission for the Protection of Biomedical and Behavioral Research, CPBBR, which investigated medical experimentation on prisoners. It considered banning such research outright, as most other Western industrialized countries had done decades earlier. Despite headlines such as Government to Ban Medical Research on Federal Inmates, it decided against this in 1976, partly because not only pharmaceutical companies, but also many prisoners opposed a ban. Inmates wished to have the opportunity to participate for several reasons. They could make real money no other way. They sometimes could obtain health care no other way. They missed the safety and amenities of the research laboratory, and they wanted to feel they were contributing to society. In 1979, State Prison of Southern Michigan inmates even filed suit to prevent the FDA from excluding them from research studies. Instead of banning prison research outright, the CPBBR proposed a detailed accreditation scheme that Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare Joseph Califano, in consultation with the American Correctional Association, rejected as impractical. In 1978, HEW produced stringent human experimentation regulations, which remain in effect today. So did the CPBBR's 1979 report, known as the Belmont Report, which placed the onus on researchers for ensuring that research with prisoners provides informed consent and is therapeutic under what is called the common rule. The common rule sets strict limits on non-therapeutic research and research done with prisoners and requires the review of proposed studies by institutional review boards. No study in a prison can present more than a minimal risk to the inmate. In sum, there remain four types of permissible prison research. That on the cause and effect of incarceration and crime, the study of prisons or of incarcerated persons, investigations of conditions that affect prisoners en masse, and therapeutic studies. Although these reforms were necessary and laudable, they are imperfect, especially because the language is vague. What, for example, constitutes minimal risk? Even the definition of therapeutic research has come into question. Still, Research at most prisons, including Holmesburg, ceased by 1976, 
as a result of public outrage and lawsuits. Research Renaissance Most people don't realize that prison medical research, which all but died out in the 1970s, is enjoying a quiet renaissance. Since the late 1980s, investigators in Arkansas, Maryland, South Carolina, Texas, Florida, Connecticut, and Rhode Island have been conducting and proposing research in prisons. Even more crucial to understand than the past exploitation of African Americans in prisons is the future medical use and possible abuse of African Americans, because they are the single fastest-growing group in prison populations. Today, research with prisoners means research with blacks, because in 2004, African Americans constituted 44 to 46 percent of all prisoners which is almost four times their proportion of the general population. Clearly, prison experimental abuse is likely to affect African Americans disproportionately. Thanks in large part to mandatory sentencing for drug infractions, women are not spared. Black women make up the fastest-growing population in American prisons. The HIV pandemic and the more recently recognized hepatitis C epidemic have attracted federal dollars and the support of pharmaceutical companies. This has renewed the interest in prisoners as subjects, because 17% of the incarcerated have HIV, six times the rate on the outside. Because most HIV-positive people in the United States and in U.S. prisons are black, the question of HIV research in prisons is a question of blacks being used in such research. For hepatitis C virus, HCV, the statistics are even more dire. Inmates have the highest HCV infection rate in the country. 2% of all Americans, but 20% of inmates, are HCV infected. For imprisoned black men, the HCV infection rate is much higher, as high as 60%. But prison research today is not restricted to these ailments because inmates suffering from disorders ranging from asthma to cancer have attracted the attention of U.S. researchers, who are conducting 10,000 biomedical research programs. Most of these researchers are funded by the Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, which, for example, supports the Yale School of Medicine with $178.7 million and the University of Miami Medical Center with $191 million. In 1999, Brown University researchers even mounted a lawsuit to gain access to prisons for HIV research. They cited the high rates of HIV and other infectious diseases in prisons and the need of inmates for cutting-edge treatments, casting their desire to do research as a plea for therapy. They are correct in pointing out that too little attention has been paid to prisoners' health. As early as 1962, Physicians complained of a dearth of medical care and therapeutic research aimed at prisoners' ills. But why, if securing badly needed AIDS, TB, and hepatitis C therapy is the goal, do proposed prison medical programs focus upon the theoretical benefits of research rather than on the known demonstrated benefits of the best available therapy? Few jailed men receive the standard of care for AIDS and HCV, such as protease inhibitors, 
heart therapy, or interferon for hepatitis C. Prisons have even failed to take simple public health measures to reduce the high incidence of anal rape and blood-borne contamination and to restore infectious disease control to prisons, which would also seem to be a cornerstone of any HIV, HCV, or TB eradication policy. Brown University researchers have conflated HIV treatment and experimentation, leading one to question whether the real concern is for prisoners' health or whether researchers wish to resume the lucrative jailhouse research of yesterday. The pharmaceutical industry requires research with humans, and the nation's 45,000 researchers are hungrily eyeing the two million Americans behind bars. Today, arguments over the ethical codes have been replaced by utilitarian rationales, focusing upon the medical benefits to society and invoking the vague right of prisoners to experimentation. But is prison research, which will take place disproportionately with African Americans, really likely to focus upon therapy and to benefit prisoners? Or will experimental treatments again expose prisoners to dangerous illegal medical risks, despite the federal regulations? Perhaps the best indication of researchers' actual intentions is a glance at some current protocols for research initiatives in American prisons. Researchers are currently conducting studies that involve inducing labor in pregnant inmates, testing different methods of obtaining biopsies, conducting a clinical trial of an experimental HIV vaccine, testing delivery of a potent new cancer chemotherapy agent directly into the liver, and artificially inducing hypothermia to treat lung cancer. A St. Petersburg Times report offered direct evidence that some of the therapeutic HIV approaches with HIV-positive inmates may not be centered on the inmate's need for therapy, because participating inmates complained that they felt coerced to participate in such studies and agreed to do so only in order to escape poor medical care, abusive conditions, and lack of access to up-to-date HIV drugs at other Florida prisons. One particularly troubling study among those mentioned above is Dr. Joseph Zwischenberger's radical new approach to lung cancer, which is to heat the subject's blood to a temperature where the errant cancer cells theoretically would not thrive. To test his theory... He sedates inmates and connects them to a machine called the Biologic HT system, which removes blood via venous and cervical tubes. The blood is heated, then returned to the inmate's body, which is kept at a very dangerous elevated temperature of 108.5 degrees. Any adult taken to a hospital with a temperature of 105 degrees would be considered an emergency case, and cooling strategies would immediately be undertaken. But in Zwischenberger's protocol, inmates' 108.5 temperatures are sustained for two hours. Subjects sign a consent form that lists death, seizures, congestive heart failure, burns, heart attack, and limb loss as possible complications. Even if the subjects are in the late stage of lung cancer, where the cure rates are infinitesimal, this doesn't excuse such a risky procedure. Although putatively therapeutic, this research surely poses greater than minimal risk. 
The consent form includes a waiver that states, in part, I understand that I cannot receive financial remuneration for any injuries resulting from my participation in this project. However, the law specifically prohibits language in an informed consent document that appears to waive a subject's rights or to release an investigator from liability for negligence or assault. In July 2000, the Office of Human Research Protections, OHRP, suspended 300 studies by the University of Texas Medical Branch, UTMB, in Galveston, including Zwischenberger's, after the researchers flouted federal regulations. 195 of these studies, mostly HIV and AIDS trials, were conducted in Texas prisons, according to the Austin American Statesman. In a September 14, 2000 letter, the OHRP listed numerous UTMB research projects conducted outside of the permissible categories for prison research and cited scant evidence that Galveston's Institutional Review Board had adhered to federal law. The OHRP had approved more than 400 federally funded studies with prisoners since 2000, but when it froze the UTMB's research projects, a chill once again crept over prison research. However, now that the inmate population has leapt from 200,000 in the 1970s to 2 million, researchers once again seek entrance to prisons, wishing to undertake a wider range of medical studies. The Institute of Medicine, which provides the federal government guidance on biomedical issues, has appointed the Committee on Ethical Considerations for Protection of Prisoners Involved in Research to study the issue. It is headed by the brilliant public health law scholar Lawrence O. Gostin, J.D., professor and director of the Center for Law and the Public's Health at Johns Hopkins and Georgetown Universities. The committee will determine whether it is possible to ensure true informed consent in prisons and whether research on prisoners should be confined to the therapeutic realm. As this book went to press in late 2006, Gostin's group was still weighing the relaxation of the regulations that have muted medical research in prisons since the 1970s, and decisions may result in dramatic modification of prison research policy as early as 2007. If the doors are flung wide to investigators, will they admit in therapy or exploitation? How can we best protect sick prisoners, many of whom are black, from abusive research without completely banning prison research? As early as 1999, Anne S. DeGroote, M.D., suggested that the best way to give prisoners with AIDS access to cutting-edge clinical studies, while protecting them from abuse, is to ensure that research is done only in prisons that already provide high-quality medical care. This way, prisoners can participate in research without feeling forced into trials. However, this chapter has demonstrated that the laws enacted to protect prisoners' rights and health consistently have failed to do so. There are no guarantees that today's promises of humane therapeutic research, which often conflates research and care, will protect inmates more effectively. Until American medicine achieves a better record of providing care while avoiding abuse, an utter ban on prison research may be the only protection. However, 
Prisoners are not the only group of African Americans who live with the threat of being involuntarily subjected to research in the name of therapy. The next chapter chronicles the plight of black children who are forced into service as experimental subjects. Chapter 11. The Children's Crusade Research targets young African Americans. What's done to children, they will do to society. Carl A. Menninger, M.D. Like many other parents struggling to bring up children in Brooklyn's Bedford-Stuyvesant area, Sharice Johnson and her husband felt besieged. Neighborhood children ran a gauntlet of ne'er-do-wells and drug dealers on their way to school, and bullets wounded even the innocent who ventured out after dusk. Gang members hounded young children. Her greatest fear was losing her sons to the streets. Already her 16-year-old was being held in a detention center in upstate New York. Was he on a slippery slope to adult incarceration? She felt he must avoid this at all costs. Shortly afterward, in 1992, representatives from Columbia University appeared at Johnson's door, explaining that they wanted her other son, six-year-old Isaac, to go to its hospital for a series of simple interviews and tests, culminating in a one-time overnight stay involving a single dose of harmless medication. The worker explained that Columbia University was offering a safe, free test for Isaac in order to discover whether he might have any medical problems. They would pay her approximately $100, and they had something for Isaac as well, a gift certificate for Toys R Us, if he agreed to participate. Johnson hesitated briefly, but eventually she signed. She explained why during a congressional hearing. At first... I did not understand how and from what source they obtained my name and knew I had a six-year-old son. I later came to the conclusion that this information came to them because of my 16-year-old's involvement with the juvenile justice system. Needless to say, I decided to cooperate with the experimenters. I felt at the time that if they could find me and knew I had a six-year-old son, they had enough power to affect the well-being of my 16-year-old son who was being held in a detention facility. American medicine has not spared black children its very worst abuses in the name of scientific research. This chapter will discuss some of the many experiments that recruited black children primarily or exclusively, that stigmatized black children, and whose agendas were specifically racial. These have harmed not only children, but also the image of all African Americans. Over a decade ago, Isaac became ensnared in such a research initiative tailored specifically for children of color. Between 1992 and 1997, New York City's New York State Psychiatric Institute, NYSPI, and Columbia University's Lowenstein Center for the Study and Prevention of Childhood Disruptive Behavior Disorders conducted several research studies that sought to establish a link between genetics and violence. They performed experiments upon at least 126 boys, most of whom were between the ages of 6 and 10, utilizing the drug fenfluramine. Columbia described the population of boys who were given the drug as 44% black and 56% Hispanic. 
but this is misleading. Hispanic is an ethnic category, encompassing people of white, black, and mixed race. And all the Hispanic boys lived in the Washington Heights area and were black Dominicans, observed Rudy M. Brown, Sharice Johnson's lawyer. The boys were all black, and this was by design. The experimental protocol specifies that eligible participants must be African American or Hispanic, and specifically excludes whites from participation. In 1998, I asked psychiatrist Timothy Walsh, M.D., who headed the Institutional Review Board, IRB, that approved the study, why? He explained that the protocol simply reflected the ethnic component of Columbia Medical Center's nearby catchment area, from which it drew its subjects. But this is untrue. Not only are there numerous white enclaves in Washington Heights, but some of the black boys, including Isaac Johnson, were drawn from as far away as Brooklyn. The boys had something in common besides their dark skins. As Sharice Johnson suspected, they had been selected because their older brothers had had contact with the probation system. Although it is illegal to breach the confidentiality of juvenile court records in this manner, a Department of Probation internal memo dated August 30, 1991, states, We are participating in a research project being conducted by Professor Gail Wasserman of Columbia University regarding younger brothers of male offenders in an effort to identify early predictors of antisocial behavior. The probation department identified them to researchers. Researchers sought to investigate whether violent behavior might run in families and to identify a biological basis for such behavior. The researchers claimed that the drug fenfluramine could suggest a genetic basis for aggressive or violent behavior in boys because it is a precursor of the neurotransmitter serotonin. Abnormal serotonin levels are implicated in many psychological states. Administering fenfluramine once or for a very short period normally causes one's serotonin levels to increase, which in turn increases the amount of hormone prolactin in the blood. The researchers measured the blood prolactin to indirectly assess how much serotonin levels rose. But if prolactin levels increased too dramatically in response, this suggested to Columbia researchers a biological brain dysfunction that may signal a tendency toward aggression. On the strength of this tenuous connection, the investigators claimed that by monitoring how precipitously the boys' prolactin levels increase after an infusion of fenfluramine, they could measure the boys' propensity for aggressive behavior. Why not simply measure the boys' serotonin levels? This might not reveal pathology, because the blood serotonin concentration might not reflect brain levels. Prolactin, however, is produced only in the central nervous system. But Wasserman and her colleagues claimed that another risk factor fed the boys' purported violent propensities, bad parenting. Black boys were fated to be the violent products of parental psychopathology, or adverse rearing environments. Why? According to the researchers, because of their poverty and their ethnicity. To bolster this deterministic claim, researchers interviewed parents to establish their worthiness, or lack thereof. 
but the interviewers were hardly blind or objective. They knew that the researchers sought evidence of pathological child-rearing and of aggressive or violent propensities. As Sharice Johnson recalled, on the campus of Columbia University, we were subjected to a series of intimate, degrading questions, tests, and interviews. The experimenters also took advantage of my fears for the well-being of my 16-year-old son to intrude on the privacy of my home. After such interviews, psychological assessments, and physical screenings, the researchers winnowed the original 126 study candidates to 66 boys, including Isaac, in several related fenfluramine studies. They did this by carefully selecting only those boys who were perfectly healthy, both physically and mentally, and did not display signs of questionable behavior. Thirty-four of the boys in Isaac's group were given fenfluramine. If the drug fenfluramine sounds familiar, it is because it constituted half of the notoriously cardiotoxic fenfen weight loss combination introduced to the U.S. market in 1973, associated with heart valve damage and deaths among dieters in the 1990s. By the time the FDA banned it in 1997, Concern was also circulating among physicians about the brain damage that low doses of fenfluramine induced in experimental animals. Medical reports of these injuries circulated well before the FDA ban and during Columbia's studies. American researchers have focused intense scrutiny into the genetics of violence among black boys. To their families and communities, the index cases who first bring a family to the researcher's attention, including Isaac's older brother, might have been misbehaving, acting out, or testing boundaries by breaking minor laws against fighting and shoplifting. However, to Walsh and his colleagues, they were mentally ill. University psychiatrists had diagnosed these boys with such psychiatric ailments as conduct disorder, oppositional defiant disorder, and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, Diagnoses that describe children's disagreeable behaviors and that are often assigned to children who break the law. Such a psychiatric diagnosis, whether it describes an actual mental illness or not, can consign a child to limbo between the law and psychiatric medicine, making him vulnerable to stigmatization by both. In fact, one legal observer, Leonard Glantz, remarked, Indeed, it appears the only diagnosis these children had was the one conferred on them by the investigators. Such a diagnosis also moves a child from the free world of the normal into the civil rights desert of the mentally ill. The press raised a hue and cry when it discovered the nature of the experiment, but failed to recognize it as part of a pattern. This was just one of many psychiatric experiments in a movement to expand diagnoses of mental illness from one family member to others by positing a putative genetic root of the illness, often on very thin evidence. At institutions such as the Harvard School of Public Health, the brothers and sisters of schizophrenics have been closely scrutinized and labeled with mental illness in initiatives that aim to expand the phenotype, the physical or mental manifestations of a genetic condition, of schizophrenia. Because the focus is upon identifying 
not treating the putative disorders. Such experiments are powerfully stigmatizing. In the cases of Isaac and others, scientists wish to discover whether these boys shared their brother's purported violent tendencies and the so-called mean gene. To accomplish this, the researchers did much more than simply give the boys a dose of fenfluramine. More than a dozen of the boys were withdrawn from all their medications for a month, including medications for such life-threatening chronic conditions as asthma. For four days, they ate a special low-monoamine diet, basically a low-protein diet, because monoamines affect serotonin levels. The boys were hospitalized the night before, and once they were out of sight of their parents, food was withheld for the duration of the experiment. The next morning, water was withheld as well. At 8.30 a.m., physicians inserted a catheter and gave each boy fenfluramine hydrochloride by mouth. Fenfluramine had never been given to children under 12 before this experiment began. 90% of adults given a single dose experience side effects ranging from anxiety, fatigue, headache, lightheadedness, difficulty concentrating, visual impairment, diarrhea, nausea, irritability, to a feeling of being high. Up to 30% of adults who take fenfluramine develop heart valve damage, and it can trigger a life-threatening form of high blood pressure called pulmonary hypertension. One boy complained of a severe headache, and others complained of lightheadedness, but they were not released. Beginning at 10 a.m., blood was drawn hourly from the boys' catheters and tested to determine fluctuations in serotonin. The researchers' claim that serotonin levels reveal aggressive tendencies is based upon questionable science. Walsh characterized the causal association of serotonin levels and aggression as widely accepted, which is incorrect. The correlation has been heavily criticized. In a 1996 Journal of Neurogenetics article, Dr. E. Balaban illuminated the specious nature of the research behind the genetics of aggressiveness when he conducted a devastating meta-analysis of 39 scientific studies. It revealed that no relationship between serotonin and violence was sustained anywhere in the body of research. The results confirm an association between low 5-HIAA, as serotonin metabolite, levels, and psychiatric disorders, but fail to support any specific relationship between low 5-HIAA levels and impulsive aggression or criminality. It is premature and misleading to speak of mean genes or a specific neurochemistry of aggressive behavior. The fictive nature of this cherished correlation proved merely the first layer of logical and design error. Leaving aside for a moment the egregious social fallout of selecting only black and Hispanic boys, this racial selection also created a serious scientific error. When only one ethnicity is considered in an experiment to elicit general information about a heterogeneous population, an unacknowledged set of socioeconomic variables are introduced. The boys were not only darker, but poor, and they also lived in less healthy physical environments than do most white boys. This distortion is magnified 
when the majority group is excluded. Most American boys are white, so excluding white boys is a very serious scientific misstep. Furthermore, the study design described no control group, a staple of such research. Finally, the researchers gave no coherent explanation of how they proposed to dissect any serotonergic effects of genetics from those caused by supposedly adverse rearing. The experimental results should have dealt a death blow to this sloppily conceived and executed research, because the boys who were ostensibly predisposed to aggression and violence by their adverse rearing and biological propensities actually exhibited normal or elevated serotonin levels in response to the brief fenfluramine challenge. However, Wasserman's group responded by reversing themselves. Until the mid-1990s, they stated that low serotonin levels are a marker for violent propensities in children. And after their 1997 study, they wrote that elevated levels signal violent propensities. These scientific errors were legion, but it is difficult to know where to begin in listing the ethical outrages of this study. And it is very hard to believe that it was conducted fairly recently by one of the nation's most prestigious universities. The experiment is rife with instances of undue inducement, from baiting children with $25 toy certificates to luring their parents with $100 no insignificant sum on the streets of Washington Heights and Bedford-Stuyvesant. Such racial selection could stigmatize not only the participants, but all black and Hispanic boys as born criminals. The element of stigmatization is key in understanding certain racial disparities in research with children, because such research is not an egregious exception for black children. Rather, it is the norm. In 2003, the journal Pediatrics published an analysis by University of Chicago researchers of 192 research studies in major U.S. pediatric journals between July 1999 and June 2000. The authors found that when compared with research participation of child subjects, generally, black children were overrepresented and Hispanic children were underrepresented in clinical trials, and both were underrepresented in therapeutic research. Black and Hispanic children were overrepresented in potentially stigmatizing research. From 52 to 54 percent of the children in non therapeutic studies were white. This number was far lower than their 69 to 73 percent representation in the population. In contrast, 26 to 32 percent of child subjects of non-therapeutic studies are black, twice to almost three times their 13 percent presence in the population. An element of intimidation, if not coercion, was introduced by the use of juvenile justice system officers to identify subjects to the medical researchers. Middle-class white Americans may appreciate police and probation officers as guardians who serve and protect, but inner-city blacks often have hostile relationships with police. These important abuses raise the question of whether it is morally right to use healthy children in a study that is non-therapeutic, dangerous, and stigmatizing. 
the Department of Health and Human Services, DHHS, would seem to prohibit this. Its Code of Federal Regulations, CFR, Title 45, Part 46, governs the protection of human experimental subjects and specifically prohibits experiments on healthy children that convey more than minimal risk. I would contend that fasting, hospitalization, low monoamine diet, fenfluramine challenge, serial blood sampling, and exhaustive psychological and educational testing is clearly more than minimal risk, observed Ernest D. Prentice, Ph.D., Associate Dean for Research at the University of Nebraska. That protocol was not approvable under the regulations. When the Hearing Committee on Governmental Reform and Oversight convened to examine the FDA role in the fenfluramine research, Dr. Walsh, chair of the NYSPI, IRB, defended the study by invoking the recent deadly shootings at schools across our country. John Oldham, NYSPI executive director, shared these concerns. With the disasters in Littleton and elsewhere, it has become abundantly clear that studies of aggressive behavior in children are imperative. However, the shootings in question had been carried out by white boys, who were clearly troubled and violent, but who were specifically excluded from these studies in favor of children of color. Why were such studies not conducted in suburban or rural, mostly white school systems? Why, indeed. Context of white supremacy. That is study uh, audio segment number one. Uh, We will pick up, uh, we are in chapter 11. Chapter 11, uh, we'll pick up uh, next paragraph for the second audio segment. Uh, Medical apartheid, Harriet Washington. Uh, Folks have commentary they would like to share. The number to dial is 641-715-3600. Four zero, the code is five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Number again, six four one seven one five three six four zero. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. If you do not want to use your phone to dial in, feel free to use the free VOPE line. It is linked at Black Talk Radio Network. If you need the address, it is tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one. Uh, Address again, tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race and that is the number one Uh, when you put in that address click the link on the left of the page it says free vote line when you click it uh, it will open a small window on your screen the top line it is a drop down menu select the number I just gave which again is six four one seven one five three six four zero Next line, it will ask for the code. That code again is 564943. Final line, it will ask uh, for a name. 
you can use your real name, uh, you can use a nickname, you can press random keys, whatever you're comfortable with. Once you get all that entered, click the green button at the bottom. It will connect you to the program. You should be able to hear us live. It is the same procedure. If you would like to participate, you will see the dial pad on your screen. Press star six. Uh, when you do so, you'll hear the audio prompt. Press the number one. I'll see your hand on the switchboard and we will get you on the line. Uh, again, the one year anniversary of the Charleston massacre at uh, Mother Emanuel AME. Not forgotten, even though it has been greatly eclipsed with what has happened this week, but very important that we are broadcasting uh, today, one year from a uh, monumental uh, moment of terrorism uh, over the last 50 years in this part of the world. Proceeding. Uh, all the folks who uh, dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary you would like to share, uh, feel free. Lines should be open. And again, I will encourage folks, please do not wait until the last minute. If you have commentary, if you think you want to chime in, share a comment or two, go ahead and get your hand up now so we don't have folks waiting until we get ready to get to the second audio clip and then deciding you want to speak up. So go ahead and get your hand up now if you think you want to participate. Uh, everyone who dialed in with a hand up should be with us. Feel free. Have you heard? Yes, sir. Good evening, Gus. Good evening to all. Um, I'll be very quick. Um, I've been listening the last few weeks, and um, I decided we can't live nor die under a system of white supremacy. Um, it's just um, a section in here that mainly should show how white people are not ignorant. Um, the, the experiment on children whose brothers were in prison, and um, they did the experiment with conforming, um, I believe they called it, conforming. Um, see if they, the violence is genetic. Um, and now, you know, they only test blacks and Latinos, which is, you know, it's, it's strange because most violent people are obviously white, and I'm sure they know that. Um, so I, I said all that to say they, they, they went through that whole section, and then they said, but they knew that first they said it was bad parenting, but it was because of the social conditions and the poverty that really caused all of this. But they just went along with these experiments anyway. And um, they, so then it comes up that this symphony, you know, causes heart valve disease and pulmonary disorders. Um, and these kids were only six at the time. Just um, amazing to me how they get away with this stuff. Is, I mean, this is just part of science. Um, 17% of all prisoners that said has has AIDS. I believe that was the number. And higher percentages were hepatitis B and hepatitis C. I believe one of them they said it was like 60%. And I'm, I'm wondering, um, are they injecting these people with these um, diseases when they get into the prison system? Because it's just so hard, odd how it's such a higher percentage than the general population outside of prison. And um, thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. Other folks who uh, dialed in with a hand up, thank you all for not waiting till the last minute. If you have commentary you'd like to share, feel free. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. I was wondering the same thing about the, uh, I'm sorry, first greetings for everyone. I was wondering the same thing about the, um, uh, where she said, I think she said AIDS. 
um, uh, it was kind of in and out. So first thing I, that comes to mind um, is, do they even get an accurate diagnosis of the so-called HIV that's supposed to provide them with the, uh, the syndrome? Uh, or did they have something else, you know, another cold or uh, problem with disease uh, that they were giving them that, their drugs to? So the experimentation is just uh, ridiculous uh, on black people still. Yeah, it's just going on to children. And, our, you know, of course, uh, we're, we're really just out of the loop. Um, on how to protect ourselves. So I'll just mute my line and just listen to everyone else right now. For sure. I uh, I think that there was a section where it seemed like it was, uh, there was some, some audio issue briefly, but I think generally I didn't really have any problems hearing it. Did anybody, did y'all have any problems? I don't know if people were listening via phone or if you were listening uh, online, but anybody have problems hearing the audio? No, 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 I didn't. No, no. Okay, I didn't. I, didn't. I, I just think it was. I think it was my phone that I, I was going in and out. Not, not that it, it was the problem with everyone else's. Uh, it just was mine was going in and out, and I had to adjust. Oh, okay. Good to know. Just lots of interference over the years. Good to know, sir. Uh, appreciate that, Sapello. Uh, other folks uh, that we hadn't heard from. Did y'all have commentary? Yes, sir. Have we heard? Yes, sir. Okay, greetings, Gus. Greetings to the other callers and listeners. I'd like to start out first. Uh, the Nazi doctors, when they were on trial <clears throat> at the Nuremberg trials, their defense, they were using the experimentation, you know, that they were doing here in America as a defense. Now, that is quite astonishing, so that you know how bad this situation is, and it just gets worse, because I guess the United States sent a uh, representative over there of some type, this uh, Ivan guy, and he turned out to be just a flat-out liar, because you can't even uh, substantiate you know, stuff he was saying. And when it comes to these medical associations and all these regulations, code of ethics that they're coming up with, it, it doesn't matter which one or what year, <clears throat> they all are being violated, even probably while they're creating them. So uh, you can name them, but they didn't have much effect on stopping experimentation in the prisons. And they just described horrific uh, conditions like you spoke about the guys that would get paid for the research. And then the money would be used, you know, to, uh, you know, exploit sexually, exploit other prisoners. You know, and then you got another problem. It was probably probably dozens of problems that was being created, you know, from the uh, experimentation other than 
the damage emotionally and physically that was done to the prisoners themselves. But uh, there's a lot here, the parole boards and the wardens and all of them using uh, pressure, you know, to, you know, kind of steer the prisoners in that direction. If you want to be favorable on this next parole board, then, you know, volunteer for research program. And then, even at that, the blacks were still not given credit for any of the experiments that they had done or any recognition because of the way the system worked. The doctors would only allow certain prisoners to be recognized as beneficiary. And even when they talked about this uh, white inmate, Jay Bosey, you know, like a, I don't know, like it's, like it's an undercover operation, right? So this guy pretends like he's being tested on too. He's getting paid, and this is encouraging others to come and participate in like it's harmless. And it's just, then this is the most important thing, and then I'll, you know, uh, yield for someone else. But the hell of prison life made the research laboratory feared and abhorred by African-Americans on the outside an irresistible haven, even a life support unit for the African-American prisoner. You know, it's just totally sad that the human touch or the feeling of importance or a need to be cared for, you know, was so great that that would even entice them to enter into those laboratories. And most of the time when they sign those so-called uh, informed consent forms, they probably wasn't didn't even read them. And the book said that even the doctors couldn't understand some of that stuff. But uh, I'll mute because I don't want to get into any anti-blackness with uh, Solomon McBride and this old judge. But we'll discuss that later. I'll, I'll mute my line. Thanks for taking the call, Gus. Yes, sir. Mr. Tim Rippor. Other folks that we uh, have not heard from, you all have commentary? Uh, Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Greetings. Greetings to you, Gus. Happy, well, not happy. Uh, Good Friday. I hope it's decent. I know we all in the system being abused. Um, You know, uh, greetings to Mr. Demery and Thomas in New York and Topello. Great to hear from you. I haven't heard from you in a minute and all the other calls and listeners. Um, yeah, just to piggyback off of Mr. Demi, what Mr. Demery was just saying, it's like literally you're being held hostage in prison unless you, you basically kowtow and succumb to being completely abused and terrorized in the form of so-called medical experiments. And um, I was, wanted to touch on the last thing that Mr. Demery spoke about in regards to the white inmate who also put on dummy patches um, to look like he was also a part of the experiment. To me, that is one of the greatest, greatest examples of uh, white people functioning as a racist superorganism collective, that even a, a, a low-class, trashy white person criminal that is in jail is able to collude with 
you know, these medical, so-called medical practitioners in order to facilitate the destruction of black life behind bars. So this really speaks to like a whole system in that no matter what level of society these pale-faced mutants come from, they all function in the same, in the same way, which is racist, white supremacist, destruction of black life at all costs, and they are all in cahoots with one another to destroy us, and we should remain aware of that. Um, let me get to one of the other sections I wanted to touch on. Um, oh, let's see. Oh, yeah. It says here on page 261, where researchers and prison administrators were hardly disinterested. Excuse me, hardly disinterested observers. They did not tell everything they knew about prisoners' true motives. Being admitted to the research unit allowed the inmate to avoid legion of institutional predators. A stint in the lab offered respite from the ever-present threat of gang rape, shakedowns, racial strife from prison gangs, and deadly assaults for a thousand petty slights. Taking meals into the laboratory unit allowed the subjects to escape the mess hall, the dreaded site of frequent melees and stabbing. And this really says that in order for you to have a quote-unquote better life, in prison, when you're trying, when you're supposed to be uh, getting getting rehabilitation and facilitating some sort of development to return to society as a viable uh, human being to contribute to that society, in order for you to have a a so-called better life, you have to basically submit to being a human guinea pig. So what they're saying is, you're really there's no way to escape white supremacy. A lot of our our people end up in prison for victimless crimes like you know marijuana and things like that, and you know, I can imagine how many black males were in jail for something like that and ended up having to facilitate being a guinea pig so that you're not raped and stabbed and, and, and terrorized by prison guards or by the actual other inmates that might be more predatory um, than than the guards themselves. So, I mean, it's like they, they have this system rigged in such a way that there's just no way to escape white supremacy on any in any way, shape, or form. Um, the section, um, there's a brief section on page 263, where, or actually it starts on 262, it says, many of the prisoners for the first time in their lives find, find themselves in the role of important human beings. We say to them, you are important. We need you. Once this is, this is established, these guys will knock their brains out to please you. If the experiment does not pan out, they get depressed. They become emotionally involved with the projects. The capacity to respond to love is greater than most people realize. I feel almost like a scoundrel, like Machiavelli, because of what I can do to them. Now, Klingman was the guy who said that he actually enjoyed doing the things he was doing to them, but now all of a sudden he has some sort of moral conscience and he feels like, like a Machiavelli. Give me a break. And what this really says is that white people psychologically train us to love self-destruction. So just like Mr. Demery said, they're just looking for comp just basic human contact, and that goes to show that prisoners are just human beings. They're not, you know, they're not these savage beasts that that the media and this white racist society makes them up to be. They're just simple human beings trying to have a decent human experience, experience, even though they might have made mistakes in their lives. And these white people psychologically cultivate them to love self-destruction on the inside, the same way that they cultivate us on the so-called outside, which is a planetary prison anyway, but those of us who are not incarcerated to love self-destruction in the form of anti-blackness and us killing one another. So this is just a, a, a telling uh, aspect of the system of racism, white supremacy. Um, something else I wanted to touch on, let me get to it. Um, oh, here it is. Ah, here it is. Um, on page... 
274, it says the praise press raised a hue and cry when it discovered the nature of the experiment but failed to recognize it as part of a pattern. This was just one of many psychiatric experiments in a movement to expand diagnosis of mental illness from one family member to others by positing a putative genetic root of the illness, often on very thin evidence. At institutions such as the Harvard School of Public Health, the brothers and sisters of schizophrenics have been closely scrutinized and labeled with mental illness in an initiative that aim, aim to expand the phenotype, the physical or mental manifestations of a genetic condition of schizophrenia. Because the focus is upon identifying, not treating the putative disorders, such experiments are powerfully stigmatizing. And part of the following paragraph I wanted to touch on, in the cases of Isaac and others, scientists wish to discover whether these boys shared their brother's purported violent tendencies and the so-called mean gene. To me, this kind of speaks to, um, to J. Edgar Hoover and him looking for the black messiah. It's almost like because these certain uh, young black males end up in prison for committing violent crimes, essentially I view those those males as people who would be the rebellious slaves on the plantation who would be violently rebellious and it's almost like they're doing that same genetic search to find that 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 black messiah or those people like i said before i believe that they're collecting our genetics in order to compare them to the genetics of freedom fighters like marcus garvey and malcolm x and Fannie lou hamer and all the other great black people who have fought for liberation and these are some of the techniques that they found but they would actually use this this stupid verbiage of uh, so-called violent tendencies i believe that you know these people were just people who violently are opposed to white supremacy but don't fully understand the system they're dealing with so they're taking it out on other black people and this is something we should really uh pay attention to in regards to um the types of experiments that they're doing to us the things that they're that they're um they're facilitating to kind of figure us out on a deep genetic level and the other last thing i wanted to touch on was just um the fact that when they took that young woman's 16 year old six-year-old son and put her through a five-year-old son i think it was and put him through those experiments and they were holding her 16-year-old son hostage in prison in her mind she was very correct to assume that they could facilitate his death or some sort of harm to him in jail and sadly she felt compelled to to put her younger son through these sorts of experiments to try and protect her older son who was actually in prison so i mean just the level that they stooped to to have us um, basically in a situation where we cannot escape white supremacy and then after any sort of adverse situation takes place in regards to these experiments or any sort of destruction to human life, they turn around and then blame the victim. And I mean, like, this book is so evident on the rhetorical ethics of white people. They're, they're just incredible use of deception um, to facilitate the destruction of black life. And, I mean, this book is absolutely genius, but it's extremely painful to, to, to uh, read. Um, and I agree with Thomas in New York. You, you not only can't we live in a system of white supremacy, but you can't die either because there's no way out. And with that, I'll mute my line, and thank you so much for taking my call, guys. For sure. Uh, other folks that uh, we have not heard from? Do you all have commentary? Anybody there? Other folks that we have not heard from, let's uh, not dally. If we haven't heard from you, you had commentary, uh, let's uh, feel free. I don't know, folks. I'm just going to wait for the second half because I didn't really hear uh, much of the first half. Oh, right on. Right on. Uh, 
Caller at 5992. Did you have a uh, commentary? Yes. Hello, everyone. Hello, guys. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, 274. Yeah, they were talking about um, they wanted to scrutinize to the uh, genetics of violent young black boys uh, and to their families and communities, so in-depth cases, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Then they talked about... Um, Isaac's older brother might have been misbehaving, acting out, or testing boundaries by breaking minor laws uh, against fighting and shocking and however. That's, uh, that's probably exactly what they were doing. I am, I am a psychologist, and I have worked in this field for a long, long time. And that's what they do in the field of psychology. They, they put these uh, stringent diagnoses on these young children, conduct disorders, oppositional, uh, defiant, and so forth, and we all know that there are no mental health tests for any of this, not at all, absolutely not. And a lot of this is just childhood play. Another thing I want to um, make a note of, the last paragraph that we left off on, uh, I'll get back to it real quick. I'm going to put that last paragraph that we left off on. Okay, here we go. And they were talking about um, why such studies do not, uh, uh, why such studies not conducted in suburban or rural, mostly white school systems when it comes to these white children and white adults who are more violent than us. In order to have tenure in the university, and I'm speaking from experience because I do teach in the university, in order to get tenure, so you have to do whatever, you have to write whatever research that they, the white supremacy wants you to write. Because when I did my study, everyone does their own consent form when you do a human study. And then it's up to the IRB or the International Review Board to approve it or disapprove it. So in these cases of consent forms that they're talking about, the system pretty much knew, already knew what was going on <laughs> because, like I said, in order to do a human study, they would have to approve it. So in order to get tenure, which is like 99% of white people who get the tenure, you have to write whatever research they want you to write. And so, for example, so if I had, if I was a tenure professor, they told me to write this maybe with, for nine, then I would have to do it, okay? The white, the white supremacy is always going to protect their ideology. They still want everybody to think that, you know, black people um, are, you know, inferior or black people this, black people that, you know, we can go ahead and experiment with them. I mean, this is across universities. This is across all the studies. You know, they know exactly what they're doing. They're not going to study white people like they study us to determine their behavior. And one thing Dr. Amos Wilson has said, uh, he, uh, in his remarks, when he talked about violence in the African community, and he said that why do they study us when they want to know about violence? They should be studying themselves because they are the most violent people. So I just want to make up those comments for some of the listeners who may or may not know as to when they talk about why have any studies been carried out on white boys, where we know that white men and white boys, there are more white people in jail for murder, <laughs> for murderous crimes than there are white people anyway. 
So I just wanted to share that with you. Thank you. For sure, for sure. Uh, quick uh, comments I will get in, and if other folks uh, have uh, other observations that they want to share or want to make time to uh, pick out any of uh, the uh, <laughs> black people that were involved in some of this, uh, as was uh, Nurse Rivers, Mr. McBride, that was mentioned before. Uh, let's see. Actually, I'm going to start not even with uh, the text. I'm going to start, uh, I think, last week when I made the commentary about how these, and I think Mr. Demery Ford mentioned it this week as well, the commentary about how these exter- experiments uh, encouraged, motivated a lot of the sexual misconduct and sexual abuses that were happening uh, in the Holmesburg prison. Uh, that's one thing that I would definitely say should have been included in this book. Uh, especially with her talking about the rapes and what have you and how the some of the inmates, particularly black inmates, they would participate in these studies to try to get some form of respite from the unsafe uh, conditions uh, included in that, the gang rapes and what have you that were happening. That should have been included uh, because that uh, is mentioned explicitly in Mr. Hornblum's Acres of Skin, which is cited repeatedly in Chapter 10 of this book. Uh, it's in the actual body of the text, and then he has uh, specific references that go why people did extensive studies uh, about this. So this report is sexual assaults in the Philadelphia prison system and Sheriff's Vans, which I thought was important given the Freddie Gray situation and that trial continuing that a lot of this stuff was not just happening within the confines of the cell and what have you, but a lot of this stuff was happening in the van as it was transporting inmates uh, to their court dates and what have you. At any rate, and this is written by Alan J. Davis uh, as a white male. Uh, so they write the first portion that uh, stood out. I'm not even reading the whole report. I'm just picking out some of the the parts that I thought were especially important, uh, where it says, what is more, the projects talking about these experiments contributed to homosexuality in the prison. That's stated explicitly in the middle of the report. These projects, these experiments contributed to homosexuality in the prison. Uh, They go on to write, uh, consensual homosexuality was excluded in our study of sexual assaults. We excluded any that were cases of truly, quote unquote, consensual homosexuality. Nonetheless, it was hard to separate consensual homosexuality from rape since many continuing and isolated homosexual liaisons originated from a gang rape or from the ever present threat of gang rape. Similarly, many individual homosexual acts were possible only because of the fear-charged atmosphere. Thus, a threat of rape expressed or implied would prompt an already fearful young man to submit. Prison officials are too quick to label such activities consensual. I'm skipping a little bit. The University of Pennsylvania and a private concern and a private concern operate a large laboratory on each block of Holmesburg Prison in Pennsylvania where they test inmates' reactions to new medications and to experimental commercial products like soaps, shaving creams, suntan lotions, and toilet tissue. The prisoners are excellent human guinea pigs, one, because they live under controlled conditions, and two, because they will submit to tests for a fraction of the fee that a free individual would demand. Prison officials, because there is very little other activity for the prisoners, and because the laboratory pays 20% of the inmates' wages to the prison system, have allowed the project to expand to the extent that it constitutes a separate government within the prison system. 
Skipping a little bit, just by wearing a chemical patch on his back, for example, a prisoner can earn $10 to $15 a week by participating in some tests that last longer. A prisoner, for doing almost nothing, will receive over $100 altogether. The Holmesburg inmates earn more than $250,000 a year from the project. A few prisoners end up with bodies crazy quilted with motley scars and skin patches, but to these men, in the context of a prison economy, it seems well worth it. I'm skipping down a couple of pages here. Uh, so they're going to more of the how this is fueling the homosexual activity. Most of the aggressors seem to be members of a subculture that has found most non-sexual avenues of asserting their masculinity close to them. Uh, oh, wait a minute. I lost my sentence. Most of the, uh, participated in this. Most, sub, uh, most of the aggressors seem to be members of a subculture that has found most non-sexual avenues of asserting their masculinity close to them. Uh, job success, raising a family, and achieving the respect of other men socially have been largely beyond reach. Only sexual and physical prowess stands between them and a feeling of emasculation when the fact of imprisonment and the emptiness of prison life knock from under them whatever props to their masculinity they may have had they become almost totally dependent for self-esteem upon an assertion of their sexual and physical potency that actually was not the uh, paragraph that i was thinking but wow that is right in line i think with what some of you all touched on in terms of kliegman and these others talking about uh, they felt uh that that was their only sense of worth participating in these studies this report goes on to detail how uh the money they were able to bribe guards uh, and that because of these studies some of these inmates they were piling up like significant uh, amounts of money some of them were piling up a thousand dollars uh and more so they could bribe uh other inmates they could bribe other guards even just uh, you ended up having uh, inmates who were in control of who got on which uh, specific study. That in of itself was a pretty massive form of control uh, to say, well, hey, I can get you on this subject over here. You can make $500. What are you willing to do for that? Uh, it was rampant. I think this is an extremely important report. And there are many of these. And I would just, again, highlight this is one. Uh, I would say Miss Washington, she should have absolutely uh, included this aspect because I think that is hugely important, especially given that she did talk about the prison rape and how that's contributing to these HIV rates or hepatitis C rates uh, and just the overall you know, horrors uh, of all of this. This should have been included and in my opinion, since I think one of the most important lines in the book where she talked about the control of black childbirth from plantation to current day, at first it was, we want you to produce as many black babies as possible because we'll have more slaves. Now it's we want to control, minimize the number of Negras. It's still racist control of sexual activity. This is just another more heinous aspect of that same continuum. It absolutely should have been in the book. Moving forward and back to the text. Um, I thought at the very beginning where they were talking about, I think Mr. Demi mentioned Andrew Ivey, where they're talking about the Nuremberg trials and they said, oh, we don't do that sort of thing here uh, in the prison. Uh, he's lying. And I'm sure he knew he was lying. He's a representative from the American Medical Association. I am certain uh, that he knew that they were indeed conducting these sorts uh, of experiments here in this part of the world, particularly against black people. Uh, when they were talking about uh, enforcement of these different codes uh, and what have you, uh, it's not a rules issue. Uh, I think whites, they come up with new rules and regulations all the time uh, when things happen about racism, white supremacy. They're talking about that now. Let's get body cameras. Let's get this. Let's get that. The problem is not that we need more rules. If white people simply followed by, if they abided by the rules that we already have, white supremacy would not be a problem. It is not an issue where we need additional rules and regulations. Um, 
Let's see, moving forward. <clears throat> yeah, this, I think, uh, consent has, has come up consistently. I think some of you all touched on that uh, already uh, in terms of them forcing people to do it. Uh, if some of the inmates said they didn't want to do it, they would just force them to do it uh, anyway or say, hey, we're going to make sure that this comes up when you have your uh, parole board uh, hearing to determine whether or not you can be released or not. You didn't want to cooperate with the uh, these experiments where you might be castrated or paralyzed or God knows what could happen to you. We just have to include that you didn't want to participate. So, oh, well, you have to stay in here for who knows how long for anything to happen. To you. you can be raped for another five years or what have you. Uh, let's see. What else? Uh, got that up parole board. Lack of information. I think that's a question justice asked uh, routinely for years on the program about ways that white people withhold information from non-white people. Uh, I think they've included that routinely throughout this text, uh, not only using a lot of highfalutin terminology so that non-white people don't understand, uh, but just deliberately making it so that non-white people don't grasp it. And then so they can talk to you like you feel stupid, like it's something wrong with you. You're just, you know, so dumb and ignorant, the bell curve and, and already what we've heard. That's the long legacy of racism, white supremacy, that black people are just dumb anyway. Oh, you don't understand. You know, we'll, we'll interpret it for you, little, you know, nigger and, and just just sign your name. That's going to happen. It's, it's all good. Uh, and even remembering Edward Anthony, who was mentioned in this book and was uh, in the audio segment at the beginning of the program, he said he was illiterate. He was functionally illiterate when he came into the prison so he really couldn't even understand uh what was on these forms and i think she uh miss washington included that as well um yeah, I think Mr. Demery Ford mentioned about them using this white inmate, Jay Bios, or however you say his name. Uh, you cannot be ignorant about racism, white supremacy. And a glint, in my opinion, this is another great illustration that there is no such thing as class. Uh, if anything, whites constitute a class to themselves. This is a convict. This is not some rich, wealthy white person with a lot of money. But he's white. Doesn't matter what he was convicted. Who knows? This could be a convicted ch- uh, pedophile. Could be a convicted child rapist. Who knows what he's done? But he's white. We don't want to subject you to the same thing that these niggers are going through. So you're here. We'll just pretend and we'll even pay you to pretend as long as we can continue to terrorize and abuse black people. I've even talked to uh, individuals who have been in greater confinement in prison, and they said it gets real clear that this is a system of racism, white supremacy. I thought that was fantastic illustration. I'm glad that she included. Um, The legally uh, innocent aspect of all of this I thought was hugely important. It even reminded me of Sandra Bland. I think her bond was like $500. Uh, I don't remember Khalif Browder, what his uh, bond uh, was set at. But, I mean, that aspect becomes just a crushing aspect of racism, white supremacy, where you end up having a lot of inmates. I think that was even a part of the uh, Ferguson report, the JOD, uh, Department of Justice, excuse me, DOJ did uh, in 2015, that you had a lot of black people who ended up in greater confinement for a long time because they didn't have a relatively, put that in quotes, small amount of money to get out of prison. Uh, And then again, these experiments, the coercion factor, hey, your bond is only, you know, $200. You do a few of these experiments, you can get that and be out of here. You might be deformed for life, but hey, you'll be out of here. No more gang rape. No more have to go in through all that. Um, Let's see. Yeah, I thought the the claiming you all touched on, I thought that was hugely important. And I think that's something that racists use all the time, even for black people that are not in uh, greater confinement. Uh, We're just saying something nice to a black person or doing anything to make them feel uh, like they are worthy. Uh, They know that they have absolutely annihilated 
Uh, black self-respect. Uh, I think particularly, I think about individuals like Hillary Clinton uh, when she goes to victims of racism, white supremacy, people who have lost their child to the police violence, Sandra Bland's mother or Eric Garner's mother when she goes to these people and says, oh yes, it's so terrible what's happened to you. Come and have fried okra and sweet potato pie with me. Vote for me. There are tons of illustrations of this, but I think it just shows how maniacal, uh, how pathological uh, whites are. And again, they're not ignorant. These folks are extremely informed and ruthless with the way that they go about just being so manipulative and conniving in the practice of racism, white supremacy. We know we have absolutely devastated you. If we can, you know, make you feel good for 30 seconds, we'll just rub your head for a little while and we'll just further devastate you here. Come in and do this little experiment so we can ruin your skin for the next 30 years and drive you crazy or sterilize you or whatever we're going to do with our studies. Everything about strengthening the system of white terrorism um let's see what did i have from chapter 11 uh then i'll stop and see if other folks have anything that they want to make sure they include uh for chapter 11 just about the experiments on children and i know we have a lot more to go in chapter 11 uh for years particularly when justice was younger when she was 10 11 12 uh, even to this day, people listen to the archives when she was that young. Obviously, she's much, much older now. I mean, she said, oh, my gosh, I can't believe you, you know, have this 10-year-old on the program. What a disgrace. And, you know, we're talking about serious issues here. And even individuals not even talking about her, but they'll be talking about their own children. You know, I have a child, and I don't want to talk to my child about racism, white supremacy. They're only nine or 10 or 11 or 12. And I don't want to talk to them about these uh, issues or they can't understand uh, these issues. And, you know, I want to wait until they're older. That is nonsense. White supremacists, they do not care. Uh, They are coming after your child from conception forward, Uh, not from the cradle to the grave. They're coming after your child from conception well beyond the grave, as this book demonstrates. Uh, You need to talk to them immediately. I think Mr. Edward Williams said I would have counter-racist material playing while my child was still in my partner's stomach. Uh, so that they can begin understanding that they have enemies and getting information and preparing themselves to be counter-racists immediately. It is so vitally important that they get that information. And this just further emphasized, I'm so glad that she spent uh, a whole chapter. I thought this was maybe one of the most important sections uh, of the book where she was talking about the misleading use of the term uh, Hispanic uh, and that, in fact, I'm just going to read what she says. What she said, this is misleading. Hispanic is an ethnic category encompassing people of white, black and mixed race and all the Hispanic boys lived in the Washington Heights, Washington Heights area and were black Dominicans, observed Rudy M. Brown, Sharice Johnson's lawyer. The boys were all black and this was by design. The experimental protocol specifies that eligible participants must be African-American or Hispanic and specifically excludes whites from participation. I even for me, I thought it was Uh, incorrect when she continued to use the term black and Hispanic because I said, man, these could be all black people. At least for me, I think some of our listeners and I myself have pointed out, I think it is incorrect when people consistently throw that term out, black and brown people, black and brown people, or they'll say any, any permutation of that black and Latinos, black and Hispanics in the system of racism, white supremacy, there should be no conflation with any other group. Nobody. I don't care if we're talking about LGBT people, Hispanics, Latinos, anybody else you want to throw in there. Nobody is subjected to the level 
examples of white terrorism that black people are. And this book has pointed that out specifically. Last week, I thought uh, one of the most important sections of the book where they said the CIA was doing these uh, experiments exclusively on black people. They didn't say black people and queer people. They didn't say black people and poor whites. They didn't say black people and Latinos. They said exclusively African Americans. If that's the case, then we should make sure that that's the language that we use when we're talking about this. It's not saying that other non-white people are not subjected to racism, white supremacy, but there is an astronomical difference that we should make sure that we are explicit, explicit and accurate about every time. But even after she said that, as I said, in my view, I thought it was incorrect because if these quote unquote Hispanic people, if these are just highly melanated folks that are black people from the Dominican Republic or black people from Puerto Rico or wherever on the globe they happen to be from, then we should just say that these are black people that happen to speak Spanish. These are black people that happen to speak Portuguese if they happen to be uh, let uh, quote unquote uh, Latino non-Hispanic speaking. That's uh, one of the, the vague terms that they throw on uh, individuals from the area of the world known as Brazil. But if these are just individuals that would be classified as black, if you saw them highly melanated folks, then we should just use terms that reflect that so we understand the nature of what is really happening. Very important section, though, I thought. Um, and they just make up, that'll be the final thing I'll get in. Uh, in. In my opinion, I think that's been one of the most important and continuous themes that has been raised in the book, that white people just make up stuff all the time, that these uh, children are violent and aggressive and whatever else they want to say, that it's high serotonin levels and association with violence. They do the study. It doesn't confirm that at all. Then they just totally change it around. Oh, it's not... Uh, low serotonin levels, it's high serotonin levels that are equated with violence and that's why these Negroes are running amok. They do this sort of thing all the time and I think she's done a really excellent job of pointing out the pattern, the trend of sloppy research and just out and out total fraud uh, and just making up whatever they want and we can put some nice, you know, multisyllabic words on it so it sounds like we're really intelligent and we got all our fancy degrees and everything behind it but at the end of the day we're just racist and liars and just making up whatever we want and then we get caught well who exactly is going to punish us you niggers certainly don't have the power to and we whites are all doing the same thing so who exactly is going to punish me and make me get in trouble i think that's been demonstrated as well i will stop there uh anybody else uh have commentary they wanted to share before we get to the uh final audio segment second audio segment anything about mr mcbride or anything else stood out in the text Uh, let's see the late uh, caller nine zero three nine nine zero three nine. Do you have commentary? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Apologies for my late uh, my late entry, Gus. Uh, uh, good evening to you and to all the callers and the listeners. Um, as I said, I'm I catching bits and pieces of it, but I just want to say real quick that. Uh, you know, the, the whole, everything that's explained in the book and um, one of your callers was, was was stating before about they can just imagine how it is in prison, how you're forced to do certain things. And I've seen it. I've seen it all. I've seen it with my own eyes. Guys come in, you know, and, and okay, start with the county jail. Guys come in the county jail, have a, you know, a misdemeanor charge of trespassing or driving on suspended license. That's a big one down here. Um, just, you know, really simple charges and end up going to prison for three years, going to prison for five years, um, fighting, getting raped, um, just all kind of stuff at the, the, the county jail level. And then when, once you get to prison, it's a whole different, it's, it's, it's a different setting. Like, um, 
it's almost like a gladiator setting. No, I take that back. It is a gladiator setting. You, you either I, I survive because I I read I read a lot. I play basketball well, so I had you know kind of guys around me that were on the same same type of thing, and I just I, I stuck to um, my type of people. But when you come in and you don't have that the type of mentality, just to be strong enough to make it through for yeah, for whatever reason that you're leaning on. If you if you don't have some kind of strength, some kind of roots base, you won't make it. You won't make it. I I've seen guys break down, big big guys, little guys, guys in the middle, everybody break down. I've had officers tell me when I was um I was a, a youthful offender and I um uh, I got chose to um I was chose to take part in this program because it was either take part in the uh, program of a three years minimum mandatory sentence for selling delivery, or I could uh, try my luck and, and uh, try my luck with a jury and end up with 36 years. It was what I was told by um, uh, Judge Judge Angelos on the say. But um, I ended up going going in the youthful offender uh, program, and um, uh, you know they, they they it's basically a military setting. They make us march everywhere. We have to call cadence, um, certain diet that they give us, um, constant beatings and and just interactions violent interactions with the officers all the time and um one officer uh older white guy i think his name was off sergeant Cade. he told me and two other guys one day he had a he has a tattoo first of all they're not supposed to have tattoos at that time they had a tattoo on his arm of a, a like a giant oak tree you know with the noose hanging off of it and everything and uh he told us he he made us stop from the rest of the, the crew he stopped us and he said, you know, this is, this is a perfect perfect day for planting a big tree. So he was trying to figure out, you know, how do you know if the tree is going to be big or not? He just said, he just alluded to, I can't remember his words, but he alluded to blood dripping around the tree from black bodies will grow the tree into being huge. Therefore, being strong enough to, to you know, get more black bodies to hang on it. So prison scene is definitely a big experimentation uh uh device that's that's basically what it is for for black people there's no there's nothing about rehabilitation it's all about being experimented on and, and being forced into doing things being it's, it's 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 a it's a it's a bad thing but i won't take up too much time uh, thank you and i'll mute my line yes sir uh appreciate that any anybody else have commentary they wanted to make sure they got in Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Great, great testimony by 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 that young young fella. Great testimony. Uh, uh, that's my thoughts on the uh, greater confinement system uh, and the design that way uh, uh, to maximize uh, mistreatment with impunity. In all in all different ways, and to, to where it's just you see, it, it, well, I've, I've never been been in that position, but but from what I've read and listened to others, it's total chaos. And what we're what we're gaining an understanding on is how, through quote unquote medical procedure and science, uh, the mistreatment 
continues. Uh, I was observing the news about this 95-year-old uh, guard that was being prosecuted uh, from a crime that he committed over 70 years ago. And we are right in the midst of people who are doing the same thing with impunity because we don't have the power to, uh, to, uh, as I heard you say, uh, we don't have the power to, uh, uh, cause any type of, uh, procedure to where they come to justice as of yet. Uh, this book solidifies for me the relevancy of common racist codification and apply it to everything that I say and do uh, to work on as an individual to the most expedient, expedient uh, process, the ending of the global system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, I would go forward and say that if white people disappeared from my presence, it would not make me sad at all. Uh, the uh, activities with children, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised with it. It, it actually is, is logical in an evil way on how they are going to harm us, as I heard uh, say it, from conception to we won't, even, won't even let you die in peace, you know, as far as that's concerned. Uh, I can recall on the job that I was on, uh, overwhelmingly, uh, it was non-white black people who had HIV or the AIDS virus. There were, it was uh, a few white males, what appeared to be white males, and most, if not all, of those white males appeared to be feminine. But for 27 and a half years, right in the middle of a job that where AIDS flourished in the, uh, in the uh, uh, mid to late 80s, uh, started tapering off in the, in the, uh, in, in the 2000s, uh, never had a case where I was in the presence of a white female that had the AIDS virus or HIV. Now, mind you now, I'm, I'm not, I'm not uh, uh, in a fantasy world. I imagine that there is some white women who do, who do have both AIDS and uh, HIV, but I've never encountered, encountered that. But in all other aspects, as I've mentioned, I have seen it. That just tells me that they are very conscious Somebody is being injected with that disease. Uh, uh, it's not just only people who have had sex or whatever. I mean, it's been a willful uh, means of transferring that disease to non-white people. In general, that's what it tells me because first and foremost, what they uh, are obligated to protect is the white womb. Uh, because like I said, I haven't, I haven't had a case at all like that. And that's all I have to say for right now. Thank you. I don't want uh, We will pivot to the, uh, unless somebody had like, uh, we can get maybe one comment in, if it's going to be really brief. Yeah. If not, we can get to the second audio segment. Is it going to be really brief? 
Yeah, I think yeah, I think it should be pretty brief. Um, just uh, listening to the book and some of the commentary that you brought up made me think about something. When I was in high school, um, I remember the police used to come to my high school and actually offer to pay young black males like $25 to go with them to the precinct to stand up in a lineup at the precinct. And I used to look at some of the guys going out like, y'all are crazy. I said, why would you even put yourself in a system like that to even stand in a lineup when you're innocent? And these guys just did it for the money. And it reminds me of some of the stuff that was brought up in the book. Um, And then later on, I was watching a documentary. And later on in life, I was watching a documentary on Larry Davis. And um, when they brought it up, they said, said that it was a part of Operation Condor which was something they were doing throughout the city of New York during the time I was in high school. So, um, it, it, again, it's a system. You know, it just really brings home that it's a system, and they, they, they have it in for us from a very early age. Thank you, and I'll mute my line. For sure. We will leave it there so that we can get enough uh, time in for people to comment once the second audio segment concludes. I did want to say really quick uh, what is called uh, AIDS. That is a syndrome, not a disease. Uh, Some of our guests that we've had uh, on the program have pointed that out before and why that is extremely important uh, for the way that this is talked about and even racist implications uh, around who ends up uh, allegedly having this or not having this and how we think about, talk about, understand this, uh, just the significance of this being a syndrome, not a disease. Very, very important. Uh, Folks can go back in the archives and check out some of the many programs that we've done around uh, white supremacy and what is called uh, AIDS and uh, HIV. Um, With that, we will pick it up. We are in Chapter 11 uh, on the experimentation uh, done on black children. Uh, Chapter 11, this is actually the last part of uh, Part 2 of this book, Medical Apartheid, Harriet A. Washington. Uh, This is audio segment number two on the context of white supremacy. Despite the violation of confidentiality, the undue inducement, the medically risky non-therapeutic research on healthy children that clearly violated federal guidelines, and the racially discriminatory recruitment, the Office for Protection from Research Risks, OPRR, investigation exonerated the research institutions. This sent a clear message that no penalties would be ascribed to dangerous research if it were conducted on black children, declared lawyer and children's advocate Cliff Zucker. In cities like New York, where the poor are disproportionately minorities, OPRR's decision has a discriminatory impact on children of color. These children will be subject to experiments that may not be conducted on middle-class or Caucasian children. A 2004 study revealed that the fenfluramine experiments may have damaged more than these children's physical health and legal rights. A relatively low single dose of the drug has been implicated in brain damage in humans as well as in animals. Fenfluramine may actually trigger such behavior changes as increased aggression. Sadly, this is not news to Sharice Johnson and Isaac. Two weeks after he was given the drug, he started having sharp, painful headaches. Then as the headaches became more unbearable, he started having anxiety attacks and hyperventilating. He would start gasping for breath as if he couldn't breathe, as with someone who was having an asthma attack. He started having horrible nightmares. He would wake up in the night screaming, thinking that someone was in his room. To this day, 
my son continues to suffer the severe consequences of the reckless disregard for him as a human being by those experimenters. To them, he was just another guinea pig. Johnson has filed a lawsuit for the violation of Isaac's rights. And the other boys? Daniel S. Pine, M.D., the study's principal investigator, told New York's Amsterdam News in 1998 that families overwhelmingly reported that the research experience was a positive one. But no family members have come forward in response to legal and media questions, so we cannot know whether their children suffered serious side effects from the drug. Johnson's lawyer, Rudy Brown, believes that the other families are intimidated by the OPRR decision and the juvenile justice system, too afraid of what might happen to the older brothers of the subjects should they speak out. And despite Johnson's insight and courage, justice has proven elusive for her as well. Her civil suit for $60 million against the city, the researchers, the NYSPI, and Columbia Presbyterian Hospital alleged breach of confidentiality and civil rights violations. But it languished for three years in the teeming files of Judge George B. Daniels of Federal District Court in Manhattan. Daniels, who is black, was profiled by the New York Times in December 2004 as the unchallenged king of delayed decisions, with 289 civil case motions pending for longer than six months, more than any other judge in the nation. By the time Brown was able to force a decision through the appellate court in November 2003, Isaac was 17, and Columbia was released as a defendant. As this book went to press, Johnson's case was scheduled for late 2006. The fenfluramine experiments are not without precedent. Thirty years earlier, the National Institutes of Mental Health's Center for Crime and Delinquency awarded a three-year, $300,000 grant to Degumber Bergaunker, Ph.D. Under the aegis of Johns Hopkins University, he undertook a large study to investigate whether adolescent boys, many of whom were wards of Maryland's juvenile justice system, gave indications of a genetic anomaly, XYY. The XYY syndrome was first discovered in 1961, when Dr. A. Sandberg described a six-foot white male who exhibited no mental or physical abnormalities, but who had an unusual chromosomal complement, called an aneuploidy. This condition affected not the workaday somatic chromosomes, but the sex chromosomes that determine maleness and femaleness. A normal male inherits one X chromosome from his mother and one Y chromosome from his father. Women inherit two Xs, one from each parent. But this man's karyotype, or chromosome chart, showed that he had one X and two Ys, an accident of reproduction. The man looked normal except for his height, a little extra abdominal girth, and troubled skin. Most XYY males look so normal that they tend to be detected by accident while doctors are looking for something else. The mere presence of a genetic variation such as XYY does not necessarily result in any appreciable difference in physiology or behavior. But visceral reactions about the presence of two Y chromosomes led scientists to postulate that such men must be supermales, possessed of unusual degrees of aggressiveness. 
For example, in 1973, Dr. L. F. Jarvik opined in the pages of the Journal of the American Medical Association that the Y chromosome is the male-determining chromosome. Therefore, it should come out as no surprise that an extra Y chromosome can produce an individual with heightened masculinity, evinced by characteristics such as unusual tallness, increased fertility, and powerful aggressive tendencies. A wealth of other differences were quickly ascribed to XYY as well, including low intelligence, abdominal fat, large teeth, and acne. But by the mid-1970s, only tallness, adult acne, and abdominal fat persisted as demonstrated XYY traits. The belief that XYY males with their extra Y chromosome were aggressive, even violent, and more likely to become criminals than genetically normal males, was bolstered by a finding that XYY males were also found in mental penal institutions at a higher rate than other men. The XYY males were not imprisoned for violent crimes, or found more frequently in regular prisons than were the typical XY males. Burgaunker sought to discover the prevalence of XYY males in the U.S. population and to determine whether the XYY genetic anomaly might be responsible for aggressiveness and violent behavior. To do this, he selected 6,000 boys, approximately 85% of whom were black, and most of whom were housed in Maryland State institutions for abandoned or delinquent children. He also selected 500 more affluent boys in Edgemead, a Maryland private psychiatric treatment center, 80% of whom were white. For normal controls, the investigator selected 7,500 East Baltimore boys who were enrolled in a free child care program at Johns Hopkins University. These boys lived in a housing project for low-income families that was 95% black. Like the fenfluramine victims, these boys were subjected to stigmatizing testing, psychological assessments, and blood draws in a three-year experiment that could brand them as latent criminals for life. Parents were told that the blood samples were taken to test for anemia and other medical problems, but it was actually drawn to screen for boys with the extra Y chromosome that made them XYY males instead of normal XY males. As with the fenfluramine study, the justice system played an active role in study recruitment. A Washington Daily News article observed, Maryland juvenile court probation officers will probably be used to persuade resisting parents to sign a permission slip for them to take a blood sample. No evidence had been offered of genetic assortment of XYY by race, yet racially distinct populations of boys were selected. Approximately 85% were African American at a time when African Americans constituted only 10.8% of the population. This means that had an association been proven between XYY males and violence, it would have emerged from the data as an association between black boys with XYY and violence. What's more, Burgaunker often culled his subjects from incarcerated populations, and no evidence of consent, written or verbal, was found for most of the enrolled boys. 
The XYY study suffered from the same glaring logical flaws as the fenfluramine study. Similar XYY dragnets were instituted using black infants in New York City and in Boston, supported by Harvard University. But in Boston, ethically responsible researchers were able to derail the study before it began. One of the most effective and vocal critics was pioneering Harvard University geneticist Jonathan Beckwith, who declared, The whole premise of the study was based on terribly faulty science. It seems strange that accomplished scientists at several major universities would embrace science that was so deeply flawed. However, if one looks beyond the narrowly stated purpose of the studies to the real utility of any data that might result from them, a logical reason emerges for this apparent design error, because a darker logic lurks behind the study's selection of black males. The studies fit the period's pattern of intense focus on violence in black populations. Between 1960 and 1972, fed by the baby boom, U.S. crime rates soared exponentially. After 1967, the relatively peaceful civil rights movement gave way to spurts of urban violence, race riots, which escalated after the 1968 slaying of the Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr., some researchers reacted by medicalizing this violence. Beginning in the 1970s, the Centers for Disease Control, CDC, reported that annual homicide rates for young African-American males were from five to eight times greater than those for young white males. These data have led to conclusions that violence is a peculiarly African-American problem, but such conclusions tend to ignore how racism and poverty confound the relationship between violence and race. They also ignore the fact that violence is an American problem, not an African-American one. The United States is the industrialized world's most violent society. Scotland is a distant second, with a murder rate that is only one-fourth of the U.S. rate. The trend toward the medicalization of violence in blacks fed the popularity of genetic violence studies of black boys, but nature failed to cooperate with the politics. Burgaunker's research and subsequent studies determined that XYY, the supposed marker for violence, is a white marker, not a black one, in that it is found more commonly in white men than in blacks. If the extra chromosome were indeed the violence gene, white men would be from 1.5 to 3 times as likely to harbor a propensity for violence. But it is not. No scientific basis for any propensity to violence or criminality in XYY males was found. And the theory, which was always thin and circumstantial, was discredited. However, the XYY theory of hyper-male criminality still thrives in popular culture because the news media which had widely trumpeted the criminal gene controversy, largely failed to publicize the findings that exonerated XYY. As a result, people still think of XYY men as harboring a criminal gene. Journalists muse on the chromosomal status of the serial killer du jour, and such murderers as Richard Speck and Arthur Shawcross have often raised a supposed XYY anomaly as a defense in murder trials sometimes successfully. 
novels and films celebrate hypermales, such as those in the film Alien 3, whose prison planet is populated by double Y chromo felons, so violent that they require off world incarceration. Racially discriminating recruitment strategies in the search for the criminal gene helped to solidify a precedent of using captive or coerced populations of African American children, a sparsely examined subtext of American experimental design. We cannot excuse the XYY experiments by suggesting that no rules forbade such experiments. By 1970, HEW regulations required informed consent be obtained before any federally funded project use humans as research subjects. Johns Hopkins University's policy also required it. In 1961, the relevant rule read, in part, persons retained in prisons, penitentiaries, or reformatories, being captive groups, should not be used as subjects of experimentation, nor persons incapable of giving consent because of age, mental capacity, or of being in a position where they are incapable of exercising the power of free choice. The boys in the XYY study fell into most of these protected groups. Although they were separated by nearly 30 years, the fenfluramine and XYY experiments had much in common. Both sought biological determinants of violence, and both chose to look no further than very young black boys with no history of mental illness or of violent or criminal behavior. A minority of white boys with psychiatric problems were victimized in Baltimore as well. Both studies were non-therapeutic, invasive experiments that could brand boys, via poorly constructed experimental protocols, as potential criminals for life. The fact that these experiments were approved by investigational review boards is especially chilling evidence that IRBs have not afforded the desired protections. The 1970s XYY experiment and the fenfluramine experiments of the 1990s were simply nodes in a continuous series of abusive experimentation that reflected the social realities of segregation and discrimination. Scientists loaded the statistical dice in the simplest manner, by testing blacks exclusively, to locate the supposed biological propensity toward violence in the hereditary apparatus of blacks. But, as the late naturalist Stephen Jay Gould mused, why should the violent behavior of some desperate and discouraged people point to a specific disorder of their brain, while the corruption and violence of some congressmen and presidents provokes no similar theory? Perhaps the answer lies not in the scientific philosophy, but in the social effects of such research. Locating black violence in the genetic complement of black boys nourishes excuses to abandon social therapeutic approaches. What good is better education, better nutrition, safe, clean housing, social and psychological support, and a more nurturing home and school environment to a born monster? But this hereditarianism fallacy is specious. An inborn racial propensity to violence has often been postulated, but has never been demonstrated, despite a bewildering variety of attempts. Even if such a tendency were discovered, it would in no way negate the mitigating value of social, psychological, 
and educational interventions, certainly not without trying them first. Murder of the Black Mind But another medical trend fueled by the born criminal image posed a much more immediate danger to boys. Crude, often experimental brain surgeries, backed by a quite coarse understanding of brain function, to excise the alleged seat of violence. Between 1936 and 1960, an estimated 50,000 lobotomies severed neuronal connections between the frontal lobes and the midbrain of mental patients, both adults and children. Psychiatrists and neurosurgeons who practiced these blind-cut lobotomies simply inserted crude tools such as the ice piccolon and blindly swept them back and forth within the brain, cutting all the connecting nerves, sight unseen, at one fell swoop. Nothing could be more violent than this clumsy and nightmarish destruction of brain tissue. These acts of unbelievable surgical hostility, which obliterated a child's very seat of thought, ability, and personality, nothing less than a murder of the mind, were forced upon black boys as young as five. From the 1960s through the early 1970s, disenchantment with the widespread use of tranquilizers fostered interest in brain surgery as an alternative to quiet patients. University of Mississippi neurosurgeon Orlando J. Andy, M.D., capitalized on this trend, performing many types of brain ablations, including thalamotomies, destruction of the thalamus, which controls emotions and analyzes sensations, on African-American children as young as six, who, he decided, were aggressive and hyperactive. Witness his published approach to the behavior of a child he refers to as J.M. J.M., a boy of nine, had seizures and behavioral disorder, hyperactive, aggressive, combative, explosive, destructive, sadistic. Bilateral thalamotomy was done, left January 12, 1962, right January 20, 1962. Right thalamotomy was repeated on September 16, 1962. The patient's behavior was markedly improved and enabled him to return to special education school. After one year, symptoms of hyper-irritability, aggressiveness, negativism, and combativeness slowly reappeared. A fornicotomy, removal of a fornix, a small, paired brain structure that connects areas of the brain that are key to emotions, was performed on January 15, 1965. Impaired memory for recent events developed, and the patient became much more irritable, negativistic, and combative, emphasis added. Consequently, a simultaneous bilateral thalamotomy was done one month later, on February 16, 1965. The patient has again adjusted to his environments and has displayed marked improvement in behavior and memory. Andy removed six areas of the boy's brain in five surgeries over three years, areas that were then known to be important to emotions, expression, and cognitive function. He also implanted electrodes in the child's brain in a vague, unspecified experimental venture. The surgeon did not explain how he arrived at his assessment of J.M.'s behavior disorder and why he thought the extreme remedy of brain surgery was indicated. Therefore, 
we do not know whether the child had serious behavior problems or whether he was exhibiting the same annoying behaviors displayed by most nine-year-old boys at some point. Andy is not a psychiatrist, and J.M. received no bona fide psychiatric diagnosis. We have no description of the effects or duration of the child's behavior, nor what his parents thought of it. There is no indication that the parents were informed of the surgery or whether their permission was asked. In short, Andy did not even take the trouble to convince us that J.M. needed medical intervention of any kind, to say nothing of having parts of his brain removed. In pondering these shocking acts, it is important to remember that Andy wrote up this case in medical journals, twice, because he was proud of it as an example of his work. According to Andy's own chronology, the fornicotomy appears to have caused memory impairment, combativeness, and other unwelcome behavior changes. Andy's response was to remove more brain tissue, which left the child adjusted with marked improvement in behavior. The boy may have been adjusted because he had too little brain function left to irritate anyone. Andy seems to have consigned most of J.M.'s personality to the wastebasket, and he expressed concern only with the purported behavior problems. He never mentioned the seizure disorder after the first line. Andy often boasted of his successes in controlling children with such surgeries, but a subsequent report on J.M.'s progress noted that, intellectually, however, the patient is deteriorating. These surgeries, performed throughout the South by white neurosurgeons like Andy, are imbued with racist barbarity. The unacceptable behavior of black boys, girls are rarely mentioned in the juvenile psychosurgery literature of the period, triggers neither psychotherapy nor counseling, but a violent medical response. The child's unacceptable behavior must also be considered in the context of the very narrow range of acceptable behaviors for black men and boys in the segregated South. When the 1955 lynching case of Emmett Till was reopened in 2004, it reminded us that young black boys could be savagely tortured and murdered on suspicion of whistling at a white woman. What transgressions triggered Andy's characterization of a nine-year-old as so unacceptable that the appropriate response was to cut out portions of his brain repeatedly? The surgeon leaves this to no one's reeling imagination. Today, Andy is revered as a neurosurgical pioneer, one whose work was never challenged in his lifetime and who never suffered any disciplinary action. This may have reflected the powerlessness of his institutionalized black subjects in pre-civil rights era Mississippi, or it may reflect the white male perspective of segregated Mississippi neurosurgery in the 1960s, or both. However, Andy did not restrict his lobotomy recommendations to black children. He also observed that the kind of brain damage that could necessitate such radical surgery might be manifested by participation in the Watts uprising. Its rioters, he hypothesized, could have abnormal pathological brains. He was not alone in this conjecture, as brain destruction was employed not only for misbehaving black boys, but to ensure the docility of prisoners and, in the 1960s, as a government-funded cure for urban rioters. 
Three American physicians proposed that such urban uprisings were caused by men who could be cured by psychosurgery. Dr. Vernon Mark, director of neurosurgery at Boston City Hospital, and his colleagues, doctors Frank Irvin and William Sweet, swept aside social factors such as poverty, slum housing, and poor education in a 1967 proposal in the Journal of the American Medical Association. The obviousness of these causes may have blinded us to the more subtle role of other possible factors, including brain dysfunction, emphasis added. The real lesson of the urban rioting is that, besides the need to study the social fabric that creates the riot atmosphere, we need intensive research and clinical studies of the individuals committing the violence to pinpoint, diagnose, and treat these people with low violence thresholds before they contribute to further tragedies. The National Institutes of Mental Health, NIMH, and the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration granted the three surgeons $600,000 for brain research on urban rioters. Lobotomies have fallen out of favor except for narrowly defined causes. 5,000 lobotomies were performed annually in the late 1940s, but by 1980, fewer than 500 were performed. Laws severely curtailing the surgeries in California and Michigan had a chilling effect, discouraging the practice. Dr. William B. Scoville of Hartford, Connecticut, for example, performed 750 lobotomies a year at state hospitals in the 1950s, but did only seven or eight a year by 1980. Today, some psychiatrists still practice several types of lobotomies. However, the crude abuse of early lobotomies has been eclipsed by a wide variety of therapeutic brain surgeries, both subtle and bold, that save lives and minds. It would be a terrible mistake to condemn all extensive brain surgeries, even experimental ones, in children. This confuses the life-saving genius of some modern techniques with the abuses of the past. For example, African-American neurosurgeon Dr. Benjamin S. Carson Sr., the chief of pediatric neurosurgery at Johns Hopkins, has devised innovative surgical techniques that use a sophisticated understanding of the brain, maintain a therapeutic focus, and incorporate informed consent. His successful innovations in separating craniopagus conjoined twins, Siamese twins who are joined only at the skull, and employing hemispherectomies to quell life-threatening epileptic seizures, have restored health, not mere docility, to an entire generation of children. But the obsession of American psychiatry with black boys continued, and took center stage in February 1992, when Frederick Goodwin, then chief of the Alcohol, Drug Abuse, and Mental Health Administration of the NIMH, appeared before the National Health Advisory Council to champion the Violence Initiative, a group of urban violence studies. He did so by comparing inner-city boys, young blacks, to rhesus monkeys in the jungle. If you look, for example, at male monkeys especially in the wild. Roughly half of them survive to adulthood. The other half die by violence. That is the natural way of it for males, to knock each other off, and, and in fact, there are some interesting evolutionary implications of that, because the same hyper-aggressive monkeys who kill each other are also hypersexual, 
so they copulate more and therefore they reproduce more to offset the fact that half of them are dying. Now, one could say that if some of the loss of social structure in this society, and particularly within the high-impact inner-city areas, has removed some of the civilizing evolutionary things that we have built up, and that maybe it isn't just the careless use of the word when people call certain areas of certain cities jungles, that we may have gone back to what might be more natural, without all of the social controls that we have imposed upon ourselves as a civilization over thousands of years in our own evolution. Many were deeply and vociferously offended by this characterization of young black men. And the then Secretary of Health and Human Services, Dr. Lewis Sullivan, who is African-American, criticized his remarks. But despite the many calls for Goodwin's removal, Sullivan appointed him head of the National Institutes of Mental Health, from which influential post Goodwin continued to champion violence initiative research, such as the New York City fenfluramine studies, and to influence other U.S. medical research policy. What's notable about Goodwin's statement is the implication that these black children poison their environment with their atavistic behaviors, instead of a belief that they fall victim to the dangerous, impoverished, and desolate urban landscape into which they are born. In the relentless quest for black pathology, the influence of unusually harmful and violent environments of many black children has often been given short shrift in deference to genetic studies. But more incisive medical investigations of violence are appearing, often conducted by African-American physicians. For example, in 1991, Harvard School of Public Health professor Deborah Prothrow-Stith, M.D., wrote Deadly Consequences, an insightful analysis of youth, race, and American violence. Prothrow-Stith used her training as a physician, health policy expert, and mathematician to make incisive statistical analyses of the myths surrounding violence in black children and to propose solutions that entail transforming obviously pathological environments, not to offer thinly supported speculation about genes. When a coalition of public health academics, police, physicians, and ministers made a concerted attack on Boston's youth violence in 1998, violent crime fell precipitously, and that year the teenage murder rate fell to zero, although, as Prothrow-Stith observed, we didn't change the gene pool. What sort of research will future scientists be encouraged to pursue with our tax dollars? Racist mythology or investigations of violence as an American problem, not a black one? As Stephen Jay Gould warned in 1982, we have a choice to make. Shall we concentrate upon unfounded speculation for the violence of some, one that follows the deterministic philosophy of blaming the victim? Or shall we try to eliminate the oppression that builds ghettos and saps the spirit of the unemployed in the first place? The National Commission for the Protection of Human Subjects of Biomedical and Behavioral Research concluded in 1977 that children were an especially vulnerable population because they could not offer consent. Yet, children today are more likely to become research subjects now that federal policies begun in the mid-1990s have changed the face of the typical research subject. 
the National Institutes of Health, NIH, Research Revitalization Act, mandated the inclusion of women and minorities in all research in 1994 and added children in 1998. So far, the new FDA and NIH policies have placed stress not on protecting children, but on ensuring children's access to research. Unfortunately, this too often means researchers' access to children. This is an ominous paradigm shift for black children, who already are overrepresented in non-therapeutic and stigmatizing medical research. Well, context of white supremacy. Uh, we will stop there. We are still in Chapter 11, and if uh, I'm looking at this correctly, I think we will have uh, approximately four of these to go. Um, some of this might depend on exactly how long the uh, epilogue is, but just from my rough observation, uh, I'm thinking four. We should be four and done, and I can say pretty confidently that the next book we're going to do is uh, Blood Brothers on the uh, friendship, uh, or I guess the dissolution of the uh, friendship between uh, the late Muhammad Ali and Minister Malcolm X. I think that would be a great uh, study uh, for many reasons uh, as well as the timeliness, the passing of Muhammad Ali of late, but uh, it should be uh, sometime in July, mid-July by the time we get to that, but I'm thinking four. Four and all done. Anywho, uh, if folks have commentary they would like to share, the number to dial is 641 Four zero. The code is five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Uh, everyone who dialed in with a hand up should be with us. Uh, I guess I'll check uh, the caller nine five one six. Did you have commentary? I think you said you were kind of waiting until the second audio segment because you didn't really get to hear too much during the first segment. Do you have anything that you wanted to share before we get to the other folks? Uh, yes. And this, um, wow, this is just, like, hard to eat, to hear, listen to just all of the uh, experience, experiments that they uh, are doing on our black men. And this made me think about um, the vaccinations that they give to um, children. You know, when they're first born, they give the vaccinations. They, and you just never know what they're putting in them. And you know to um, to make them have these uh, this 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 X Y Y this genetic anomaly that makes um you know this this super male with increased aggressiveness and and violent behavior, but I mean it's like they 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 cause the problem and then they say they're gonna treat the problem, but basically they just want to you know feminize and emasculate and control and make you know, our black men submissive. Um, and that's all I had. Thanks. No, uh, Charles S. Dutton was one of the XYY black males that was in Alien 3, where he says, uh, I'm a rapist and murderer of women. And uh, there's a whole, there's a whole nother backstory on the racism in that uh, sci-fi film, but that is even though it did come up in here, that is another story. Anyway, uh, other folks that dialed in who have commentary, would you like uh, to participate? May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. 
you know, this is the first time since I've been participating in the book reading that I just wanted not to participate. I started to take my earplugs out on this section of uh, Murder of the Black Mind. These savages, it just, it, it, it's harder on my emotions, like I'm sure maybe for other people as well. And, you know, I used to live around white folks, but for the past years, I just refused. I don't care what they say about the hood or the neighborhood. You know, I prefer to live around my own people, and I ain't like the other caller. I care less. If I ever saw another white person again in my life, it doesn't bother me one bit. Just the idea of what they did to these children and this savage dismantling this boy's brain, you know, it's just, it just, I don't know, it's just unbelievable. And let me just say this about when they talked about in our in the uh previous section when we was talking about all those two point five million people in jail. I still look at uh Clinton today with so much disdain because it was his signature that puts a lot of our uh black men, mostly black men and, and women in the jail. He had the audacity to come out I think in December, early this year, and apologize. You, you can't apologize for, you know, the destruction of our neighborhoods and our families. And I really don't believe he meant it anyway. Like any other thing he ever says about uh, black people and poverty, I don't believe that as well. So this is just really chilling for me. It really unnerved me when I, you know, when I really started reading about, about this section here. So I, I just wanted to share that. Thank you. Uh, the folks that we have not heard from, if you had commentary. Happy heard? Yes, sir. Well, good evening again. Um, yeah, I agree with both callers, um, especially with the Clinton comments. Um, you know, this, I was just thinking, um, if they ever wanted to spread a deadly disease, you know, I mean, they could give it to people in prison. And, um, you know, as they get released back into the general population, they can spread it. I mean, and who knows how many diseases have come about that way. Um, you know, my kids were born in um, Columbia Presbyterian Hospital in Washington Heights, and um, there are um, several hundred thousand um, Dominicans that live in that area. And um, a high percentage of them, you would not be able to tell apart from a black person at all until they talk to you in Spanish. And the rest um, are just, you know, very light-skinned black people um, who do a lot to make their hair straight, it's, um, you know, um, so, so, so they don't fit in. But um, they, they are definitely black people. I, I don't, I, the only thing they speak Spanish. Um, and I just wanted to say, you know, there's a paper in New York called The Village Voice. And, um, when you get to it, um, they have like these, these ads where they'll say, you know, um, experimental drugs, you know, um, you want to get paid to, you know, this or that. They, they do all kinds of experiments, and they all take place right here in Columbia Presbyterian, which is very strange. But I guess they have a high percentage. But sometimes when I go in that area, and there's 20 buildings, I mean, the hospital is huge, there's 20 buildings. They did an art hospital, probably one of the best in the world. But you'll see a whole room where there's nothing but 
you know, poor Dominicans, and you're wondering, wow, why are they all in here? But none of them speak English, so you can't ask them. So, um, you know, um, if they want to study the brain of what causes people to violate, I would think they should study white people's brain, being that they're the only people who've been effectively able to riot in this country um, without any um, repercussions, without anyone stopping them, um, without any rubber bullets being fired at them or anything. Um, they're the only people in this country ever that I know of to be able to riot um, successfully. And um, um, they wanted to stabilize, in the earlier chapters, they wanted to stabilize black women using all kinds of methods, including you know, placing cancer, causing radiation rods in their skin, and all types of things. And in this chapter, you know, you find out that they just want to make black men dorsal, um, you know, which, you know, pretty much um, just someone that's weak, um, not going to be any threat to them. And um, I think it's more so, I, you know, I kept thinking of Dr. Weldon, you know, they just want black men to be in a position where they're not going to be able to reproduce, um, especially with white women. Um, and, and I think that their, all their experimentation has worked quite well, um, especially when you look around today, you see the high levels of black male homosexuality. Um, they created a whole bunch of dorsal um, men. Um, that's not a threat to white women. You know, they're, they're not interested in women at all. Um, um, and lastly, I can't believe, well, I can believe, um, I mean, this part was so hard, I was cringing listening to it. They took out six pieces of this man's brain, and all the parts of the brain that cause you to have an emotional response to something. And, um, I just thought of Leonardo DiCaprio and Jingo. Um, and he was, you know, did the whole skull thing. Um, I think you played that clip before, Gus, or you spoke about it. But um, just, man, I mean, the, the, how do you take out the, the pieces of someone's brain that causes an emotional response? What, 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 how do you expect them to react? They have no more emotion. You know, they have nothing, no boundaries. Um, and then, I mean, I guess the end result is what, do you want a vegetable? You know, someone that's just going to sit there and do nothing. I mean, the system, um, whew, this is a tough one, but thank you. Other folks have uh, commentary they want to share? Um, can yes, I be heard? Oh, you can go ahead, sir. I'll wait. Okay, mine be real quick. It's, uh, not very long. I'll start with the end part first. The uh, murder of the mind, you know, it's just that's beyond anything that we could, you know, ever. You know, I mean, it's way past the experimental stage when you are inside somebody's brain and disconnecting, you know, different parts. It's... Uh, you know, that's, uh, if anything, it's a violation of the person's uh, human rights. And, I, you know, it brought up something to me when I was reading about Carissa Johnson and her husband and her little son, Isaac, and how his rights were violated. And when she filed suit, then even the investigator 
was on the side of the system because he was saying that all the other families saw no problem with it, that, uh, you know, they, they benefited from it. But it was that, you know, that evilness, that conniving. And she said at the time of the press that Johnson's case was scheduled for 2006. And I did a little research to see if I could find out what eventually happened. You can't find anything on that. So if that was 2006, that's 10 years ago, and you still don't know whether that was settled or not, the guy, little Isaac, you know, that is a perfect example of injustice because justice being that no one is harmed and those who need help the most get it. And that was the complete opposite of justice. And I'll briefly say something about the XYY syndrome. It's interesting that she put the paragraph uh, talking about the study and where they got the subjects from, the Maryland juvenile justice system, you know, which they, the majority was black or all black, and she didn't. Mentioned that, then she went on to say that when it was first discovered, it was in a white man, a six-foot white man, and most of them were white. So if they're going to do some studies now, then why don't they start studying white people? You know, it just brings that little question up right at the beginning. I thought that was uh, interesting. Okay, I'll mute my line. Go ahead, Ross. Uh, yes, uh, thank you. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right, thank you. And um, just to piggyback off of um, what Mr. Demery was saying, in the XYY males, I thought of the same thing. It, and what I realized with them is that they already know that they're the, the, they're the most violent creatures on Earth, so that's probably why they don't study themselves. But what I thought about, too, is when they when she said that the in their minds the XYY males um were somehow super males um and i just thought about just how how homosexual um anti-sexual the vast majority of white males i've ever come across are and how effeminate they are and when she talked about their ultra-violent tendencies supposedly i just thought i just thought of them as being super white um anything to do with violence and destruction of life i think of being super white so essentially maybe these people are extra extra violent and extra extra psychotic i wonder if um jeffrey Dahmer was one of those xyy males or whatever the case may be and the other thing too was um the the sister that was talking about not wanting to live around white people i totally understand and i concur but the one benefit i could say you we would get by living anywhere near them is probably a cleaner environment because they systematically destroy and um, violate our environments with uh, environmental racism. And I remember that it brought me to a uh, memory. I was listening to an old episode of Tando Radio, and they were talking about how um, they found in Flint, Michigan, and other places around the country that they have two sets of piping systems that are used in the urban environments. Um, specifically where they can turn valves off and on so that clean water goes to white households and contaminated water goes to black households. 
And I had never heard of that before, but I happened to just catch this old episode and it blew my mind, just not because I didn't think they were capable of it, but just how sophisticated their racism is. So basically they even know when a white person, let's say, moves out of a, in a specific place and a black person moves into that place and they'll switch the vow so that that black person gets contaminated water. So that just speaks volumes. But let me get to the book. Um, one of the things I wanted to touch on was on page uh, 284. Uh, actually, the very beginning where it says, uh, but another medical trend fueled by the born criminal image posed a much more immediate danger to boys. Crude, often experimental brain surgeries backed by quite a quite coarse understanding of brain function to excise an alleged, the alleged seat of violence. Between 1936 and 1960, an estimated 50,000 lobotomies, several neuronal connections between the frontal lobes and the midbrain of mental patients, both adults and children, psychiatrists and neuro neurosurgeons who practiced these blind-cut lobotomies simply inserted crude tools such as the ice pickling excuse me, and blindly swept them back and forth within the brain, cutting all the connective nerves sight unseen at one fell swoop. Nothing could be more violent than this clumsy and nightmarish destruction of brain tissue. These acts of unbelievable surgical hostility, which obliterated a child's very seat of thought, ability, and personality, nothing less than a murder of the mind, were upon black boys as young as five. And this just, I mean, I've actually read about these things and actually seen some of this depicted in horror movies where they go through the um, eye socket of a male with a sharp object and basically scramble the brain like eggs. So that's essentially what they're doing is scrambling their brains like eggs and um, just completely destroying the tissue itself. And it's just to even fathom what that is and how that looks and what the person is going through at the moment that this person is doing it because they normally would do it without anesthesia as well. So, um, I mean, to do this to children as young as five, I mean, this really speaks to white psychopathology against black children and against all children. Um, the next thing I wanted to touch on is, um, according, it's on uh, page 285, at the bottom it says, according to Andy's own chronology, the fornicot, Excuse me, fornicotomy appears to have caused memory impairment, combativeness, and other unwelcome behavior changes. Andy's response was to remove more brain tissue, which left the child adjusted, quote-unquote, with marked improvement in behavior, quote-unquote. The boy may have been adjusted because he had too little brain function left to irritate anyone. Andy seems to have co-signed most consigned, excuse me, most of JM's personality to the wastebasket, and he expressed concern only with the purported behavior problems. He never mentioned the seizure disorder after the first line, and he often boasted of his successes in controlling children with such surgeries, but a subsequent report on JM's progress noted that, quote, intellectually, however, the patient is deteriorating, unquote. Um, to me, this is like the beginning of the zombification process, I believe that they were trying to find a way to really, when they, when um, Thomas and, and Gus and the other calls were talking about the docility or, um, or making 
black males docile. I think this was their beginning of their experiments with zombification. Um, and we're seeing it now culminating in like hit shows like The Walking Dead and such and such. And it just really brings brings to, to mind just the, the type of sickness that that white people must have as far as just their organized terrorism for them to even conceive of doing this to other people. And the last section I wanted to touch on is uh, on page 288. It says, what's notable about urban landscape into which they are born. In the relentless quest for black pathology, the influence of unusually harmful and violent environments of many black children has often been given short shrift in deference to genetic studies. And this really speaks to that the fact that um, with white people, there's no concern with helping anybody function to their optimum capability. It's only about trying to prove somehow through genetics that there is something wrong with black people and to somehow normalize the white melanin deficient psychotic gene that they carry and they perpetrate and perpetuate every time that they create another creature. And um, we just, it's just a lot to think about because anytime we go for any sort of uh, medical assistance, essentially this is, this is the way that they view us. And I mean, you know, for me, sadly, uh, my father-in-law is actually in the hospital now and we have been trying to avoid that because the last two experiences almost actually took him out. Um, come to find out as far as his health, he, his physical health, he's really good. My wife's changing his eating habits has gotten him. Um, actually, he's, he's no longer actively diabetic. She's gotten his blood pressure stabilized and things like that. But he actually was um, poisoned by a severe UTI, and um, now he's, he's doing better than he was recently. But just the idea that he's in there, we have a very codified way of functioning in the hospital, and we visit him as often as possible and ask as many questions as possible to try and protect him. And we are very adamant about making sure that we stay stand up for his rights, um, and we will continue to do so while he's in the hospital, and um, hopefully we'll have him back in the next uh, month or so. Um, last time they kept him for two months. So thanks for taking my call, and I'll meet my line there. For sure. And definitely prayers, thoughts uh, to your family, hoping for a speedy recovery. Um, asking questions. Man, Vanilla Randall, she would give a uh, huge uh commendation uh to you and your family for for asking questions that was one of the big uh, suggestions that she gave um if if anyone if you or anybody you care about has to uh go to the hospital to make sure you take someone who is uh healthy uh so that they can just be observant and ask questions they don't have to have a phd or medical background just being there being observant uh, and being a little bit suspicious of whites can go a long way to keep those butchers from hacking up uh, somebody that you care about uh, if they should have to go to uh, get medical treatment. Um, did uh, we miss anyone, anyone uh, present who has not commented, who had a hand up? We got everybody, if everybody... Satisfied who had a hand up, who, who had uh, something they wanted to share? Grant, uh, some of the uh, quick comments that I wanted to get in. Um, same thing that I said, I think she started uh, the segment when she was talking about some of these studies that were done in New York, uh, where Cliff uh, Zucker said that they were doing these studies that were terrorizing specifically black children, but, you know, again, 
who is going to indict us for doing this? <laughs> Certainly black people don't have any power uh, to do anything to us for what we've done. So we might just continue right along uh, doing more of these studies, which sounds like that's exactly uh, what has happened, continuing to happen right now, 2016. Um, let's see, next up, uh, where the sentence where she says... Uh, the studies fit the period's pattern of intense focus on violence in black populations between 1960 and 1972, fed by the baby boom. U.S. crime rates soared exponentially after 1967. The relatively peaceful civil rights movement gave way to spurts of urban violence, race riots. I thought that was curious because the quote-unquote relatively peaceful uh, civil rights period that she was talking about, to me... That is the period of Bull Connor sicking dogs on black children and Rosa Parks being snatched off of an Alabama bus uh, by armed white thugs uh, and Emmett Till being butchered, castrated, murdered. Uh, lots and lots of violence. The bombing of the church, which she mentioned before in Birmingham, also Alabama, uh, and then their bodies being dug up uh, later, at least one of them, their bodies being dug up. That seems that does not seem relatively peaceful to me. Uh, I guess it would come down to what do you mean by peaceful? Uh, if we're talking about what whites were doing in response to relatively peaceful Negroes, it was certainly not peaceful. They were being extremely terroristic. I would submit that all of the things that they were doing certainly paled in comparison uh, to how black people responded uh, later on uh, in the 1960s. Uh, I certainly do not remember uh, black people bombing uh, any white churches uh, during the latter portion of the 1960s. I don't remember them killing any white children uh, in the later 1960s. I don't remember them sicking any dogs uh, on white people, uh, which all of that seemed to be standard operating procedure uh, during the 1960s. And continuing again, this is the one year anniversary of the massacre at Mother Emanuel EME. But I just that was a curious sentence uh, stood out to me. Um, the whole extra chromosome thing, I think you all touched on it before. I thought as well, like, hey, right in line with what I just said, we should be studying whites. It would seem if someone is extra violent, that's who we should be studying. Everything that we've read in this book and the whole history, even what they brag about, why you get movies like Alien, where it's just about violence and killing. And, you know, we go to a whole another planet just to do some more killing, find another creature that we can hunt down and kill. Uh, that's who we should be studying. But no, that's not what we want to do. That's not what this is all about. Um, let's see, uh, the portion where she says that a lot of the research and studying that they were doing, uh, it's not necessarily get better education, better nutrition, safe, clean housing, uh, and social and psychological report is just to find further justification. In my opinion, just continue the practice of racism, white supremacy that we we're going to do this. So we're just going to further create concepts uh, and justifications for us to continue going out and terrorizing black people, that they're criminals, they're violent. Uh, again, there's a whole uh, book that talks about this increase in the 1960s of saying that, you know, the Negroes are going crazy very much in the vein of Samuel Cartwright and Draftomania saying that, you know, these Negroes are crazy. You know, they have the audacity to be out here picketing uh, and protesting, uh, yelling about racism and how they are being uh, mistreated. They must be crazy. We'll say that they're schizophrenic and we'll get them all kinds of medications and lock them up and have them in mental institutions and, and just saying that they are they are psychotic. 
Black uh, for doing all of this. There's written a whole book about it. he used to be on the white author who's on Melissa Harris Perry's uh, program on a pretty regular basis. Um, let's see. I, too, I looked uh, Sharice Johnson to try to find what happened with that case, because, I mean, if this was started in the early 2000s, I'm thinking, wow, it's been, you know, almost two decades. This should be some resolution. I, too, failed. I could not find anything. And I mean nothing like a continuance settlement out of court, anything. We tossed the case, you know, these niggers are making frivolous claims and with nothing like this didn't even happen, which, again, just should, that is the awesomeness of white power. I feel like we frequently victims of racism, just in total people, uh, when they use terms talking about white fragility and all this nonsense, uh, that would just not be an honest, uh, I mean, we're talking about awesome power to be able to do this. Even when they were talking about, uh, doing these, uh, you can't even just butchering, maiming black children and just, you know, oh, this nigga's getting on my nerves. You know, he's being unruly or what have you. I got to cut his head open and, you know, I'm just going to suture and, and slice his brain up like I'm cutting on a tomato or something uh, that this is not new. This even came up. This is, I think, at least the second or third time that this has come up in the book. I think the first time it came up, uh, it was during the formal plantation stage when they were taking, you all can correct me if I'm wrong, but don't you all remember they said when they were taking instruments that you would use uh, to work on shoes, uh, some sort of uh, a person who worked on uh, garments or what have you. I just forget the formal term, but they were taking those instruments and cutting open black babies' skulls. People remember that part from the book, right? I know that was a while back, I think probably a month or so ago earlier in the book, but I think this is at least the second or third time that she's talked about this. A lot of uh, what we have read, it seems very much on a continuum of they just keep doing the same thing, whether it's the the racist uh, phraseology that is used in terms of classifying black people as crazy for our responses to racism, white supremacy, comparing us to monkeys and beasts and savages, anything but uh, human beings, men and women being oversexed. Uh, and then everything that results from that, of course, they're not humans. And of course, we're not going to think about them in that way or treat them in that manner. So they deserve to be butchered and tortured, enslaved, maimed, killed and whatever else, uh, you know, we decide that we want to do with them. It just seems like doing uh, more of the same, more or less, uh, for centuries. I think that's pretty much what this book has pointed out, at least in my view. Um, yeah, this Ed, I, I was looking at this book, uh, Violence, uh, and I, I was searching for it to try to see if I if I could locate it. It's uh, Violence in the Brain, Violence in the Brain, where she goes in detail about all this, where this white person, he wasn't even making a, an effort to hide what he was doing, <laughs> and just like he was proud of it, and he's not vilified. I thought that was important that she talked about that uh, as well. Um, this doctor who is doing all this to this young black child, uh, the initials uh, JM, where she said Andy did not even take the trouble to convince us that JM needed medical intervention of any kind to say nothing of having parts of his brain removed. If pondering these shocking acts, it's important to remember that Andy wrote up wrote up this case in medical journals twice because he was proud of it as an example of his best work that I, I thought said so much right there and again this notion that you know white people are ignorant or they don't know what they're doing he's publishing this for other white people he's not publishing this for negras to read he's certainly not publishing it for jm's parents and family members to read what he did to their you know brother son whatever the case may be he's publishing this for other white people to be proud look what i did to this nigra we can do this to others maybe we can do this to large numbers maybe we can go out and grab all these niggers that are running around in the streets in watts and newark and washington dc and other places 
were black people. They, they this is I think the 40 year anniversary of the uh, Soweto student uprisings in South Africa. Well, we can go snatch them up too, uh, and scramble their brain up so they will settle down and be more obedient little subjects on our global plantation. Uh, just stunning. Um, see anything else stood out before we get to the end? Yeah, we had another comparison to black people in Harambe. But like I said, that's it. for me, if anything, uh, I think it is important noting that as as heinous as a lot of what uh, is mentioned is, as chilling as it is, most of this has been mentioned before in the book. They just keep doing the same thing over and over and over. They find new ways of doing the same thing in terms of how they're going to terrorize, control, dominate uh, black people. Um I don't know how the book will end. I'm reading it all with you, but I suspect it's just going to be more to come as we continue to move along. And we are we're getting closer and closer to current time. So it'll be interesting to see uh, how close we get to what's actually happening in the 2000s as we move over the next, I think, four weeks till we get to conclusion. Uh, I will stop there. Uh, I will assume folks are satisfied uh, with what they want to get in before we wrap things up. Um, we will be here. Tomorrow, compensatory call in. Uh, certainly feel free to uh, dial in. Looking forward to discussing uh, certainly the Orlando incident. Uh, never hear about that. I was glad she brought that point up as well when they were talking about all of the violence and uh, black children running amok. Uh, you do not hear that sort of thing getting attributed to the Dylan Storm roofs and uh, Dylan, uh, the shooters uh, in Columbine uh, in Colorado, and uh, my man who did Timothy McVeigh, who did the Oklahoma City uh, bombing. You do not hear that sort of thing get attributed uh, when whites are running amok and doing these sort of things. It's only black people that we've got to do something about. But uh, certainly we'll talk about the uh, one-year anniversary of the uh, massacre at uh, Mother Emanuel AME tomorrow, as well as the Orlando incident. Uh, it's been a lot that took place this past week. Uh, the Global Sunday talk on racism, uh, that will be uh, this coming Sunday. Uh, it is moved up. Uh, the time will be 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific. Uh, that is still way earlier than our normal broadcast, but it will be early in the day, obviously, because we want people that are outside the states to participate. So, again, it'll be 3 p.m. Eastern this coming Sunday, 2 p.m. Central, 12 noon Pacific. Global Sunday Talk chime in. It will be great. I'm really excited to hear uh, people outside the states uh, what they have seen, read about how it's being discussed, what happened in Orlando uh, outside the states, as well as the one-year anniversary of uh, the Charleston massacre. Uh, with that, if folks... Yes, sir. I, don't, I just wanted to say, that sentence that you read in regards to um, uh, Dr. Washington, where the, the one that you just read... Which one? This, Which the, one? Um, the, the sentence you took out of the book um, just now, just just before you ended, ended your commentary. About uh, the surgery on J.M., them butchering his brain, or the, uh, what was No, the, the, the peaceful, the peaceful oh, right, era. Right. What I thought about, I really thought one of the editors put that in there, because I thought, just like you, they were speaking to the docility of our reaction to what, to all the violence they were exhibiting upon us, and for some reason, I really feel in my gut that one of those white female editors, whoever it was, put that sentence in there it's almost like a subtle insult to black people um and that's just my feeling on that and i just wanted to chime in with that because it stood out immediately when you read it because i thought of this thought of, of something similar to that and when you went into the explanation i said wow this makes total sense what he's talking about and i just it, i don't think that was her i think that was something that was added in there by white people 
Definitely possible. I'm glad, folks, we have pointed that out the whole way along. I think many of you all, I think that's important to keep in mind as well the whole time. You definitely have a lot of editors, a lot of uh, other racist fingers, racist eyeballs that go over these type of texts uh, before they are published uh, and add in sentences, remove sentences, change words, that sort of thing. Certainly, uh, that makes total uh, counter-racist logic sense uh, as to uh, that sort of racist influence to produce a sentence like that. But, yeah, I'm glad to get that in before uh, we wrap things up. If if other folks, if you're listening in, if you have comments, if anything stuck out, if you know, it was something that we didn't touch on that you think is important, uh, you want to drop an email, we can read it as we roll. Uh, if you, you email it, we'll read it next week or whenever before we wrap things up over the next four weeks or so. Uh, the email is untiljustice at gmail.com. Untiljustice at gmail.com. Uh, feel free uh, to send off. And again, Harriet Washington has written many other things. If you want to check out more of her scholarship, uh, this, I would say, is a ringing endorsement uh, of her work. You should check out some of the other things because she's even done more contemporary work looking at uh, the uh, Ebola crisis on the continent uh, over the last couple years or so. Uh, at any rate, uh, thanks for all the folks participating. I hope it has been a constructive investment of your Friday evening. Uh, again, sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism. If anything, this book should motivate us to be serious, uh, given the massive nature of what we are facing. You definitely do not want to be intoxicated when you've got folks that are just looking to snatch Negroes up and throw them in jail and butcher your brain or castrate you or sterilize you or anything else. Uh, that they can come up with, uh, you definitely want to be able to be thinking clearly, logically, so you are aware of your surroundings, suspicious, properly so, of each and every white person, males, females, children. Uh, and certainly, if you're going to be in a vehicle, you do not want to make the job of the Daniel Holtzclaws and Darren Wilsons of the world, white race soldiers, you do not want to make their job any easier. Uh, certainly, let's be sober. Uh, that's if you're going to be a driver, passenger, even as a pedestrian, uh, you want to be able to make phenomenal decisions if you should be stopped uh, so you can keep yourself as safe as possible as well as anyone else you may be responsible for in the vehicle. Uh, certainly buckle up if you're going to be in a car. Uh, we want to do everything we can to minimize contact with race soldiers. That's one easy thing that you can do in addition to being sober once you get in the automobile. With that, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately context of white supremacy signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim no brother problem. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.